You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome to the Oz Network for the almost third waypoint. I guess we're technically the third waypoint through our Star Wars season, the biggest project we've ever undertaken. And we have spent three weeks defending the prequels and uh, the amount of time it would take you to watch all eight episodes so far, I think. Uh, but we're going to slow it down a little bit today. We're going to get to something that's equally fun, but uh, less um, uh, opinionated than the three movies that have preceded this, and uh, maybe less spectacular than the three or four that are going to follow this. We're here to talk about Solo, A Star Wars Story, the second Star Wars anthology spin-off film, uh, but uh, the first chronologically, the first chronological break we're going to have between the actual episodes. This is a movie that we reviewed uh, about a year and a half ago when it first came out. Uh, and we're, I guess we're going to find out if our opinions have changed much because it's probably the Star Wars movie we've seen the least and um, the, the movie that m- most fans know the least because it was considered the first ever Star Wars bomb, something that uh, I think I'm going to at least poke a lot of holes in throughout this episode. Uh, we're going to get to talk about Alden Ehrenreich and Woody Harrelson and the new Chewbacca, uh, also known as the Chewbacca stunt double, and the Millennium Falcon and Donald Glover and uh, Amelia Clark is there too. Something we're already familiar with being slightly underwhelmed by. Uh, we'll see if we get turned around on her in this episode. Uh, Han Solo's origin stories, lots of stuff to talk about. So um, we're, we're finally here at the Han Solo origin story that nobody asked for. <laughs> so let's see how our opinions change and uh, how long we could actually go on this. If we can keep it under five hours, I will be happy. Uh, let's get into it. My name is Colin, you mangy Kashikian moof milker. <laughs> and my name is Ben and I'm feeling like a star. You can't stop my shine. I'm loving Cloud City. My head's in the sky. I'm solo. I'm hand solo. I'm hand solo, I'm hand solo, solo. I'm picking up my blast, I'm putting it on my side. I'm jumping into my falcon, wookie at my side. I'm solo, I'm hand solo, I'm hand solo, I'm hand solo, solo. There we go, you're welcome. <laughs> That's the national anthem of Corellia. Uh, <laughs> so following you, up from last week. Have you ever played Connect Star Wars? <laughs> no. So there was like, um, oh, like you know, Connect. It was like that PlayStation thing where you moved and did that. So they did like um, dance mm. Star Wars, and so there's like, oh you, yeah, you got to look it up. It's like the most cheesiest thing in the world, and it's like basically Lando Calrissian and Han Solo in a dance off on Cloud City, and then they basically parody um, Solo by Jason Derulo with Han Solo lyrics. So, yeah. It's Which, it happened. Coincidentally, <laughs> coincidentally, in the uh, Lord and Miller original cut of this before Ron Howard took over, that's how Han Solo won the Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's another one. I think it's like um, a parody of um, uh, YMCA, but it's like, it's fun to be in the Empire tonight. And it's like stormtroopers dancing to it. So, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, that game did very well, as you can see. And the recap for that will be coming uh, somewhere <laughs> yeah. in between episodes five and six. Featuring video of Colin and I dancing to I'm Solo, <laughs> I'm Han Solo. <laughs> this, I think, is going to be an interesting one because um, this movie's reputation preceded it uh, before it ever came out. 
it seemed to me uh, the first thing we're really going to talk about here is like it's just the the general reactions people had to this movie but it seemed to me this was like the movie that everybody wanted until they announced they were doing it and then nobody wanted it and of course we had like the troubled production and everything but this seemed like it was the movie plagued to be a bomb before it ever was released regardless of whatever the box office returns were and I feel like even still to this day, people talk more about the trouble production than they do about the quality of the movie. Because as I was going through a bit of research for this, thinking what do people you know, um, think about this movie a year and a half later, it's the same thing they thought when it came out. It's like, that was a pretty good movie. And yet, still, you can never hear about this movie with people without people saying, oh, that was the Star Wars bomb. And it's just weird to me. Um, although I think... I guess getting to our initial opinions, which you refreshed your memory on by listening to our review, <laughs> um, I don't think I was really thrilled about this movie coming out. I wasn't against it, uh, but if you would have asked me, you know, what Star Wars movie are you dying to see, I never would have said the Han Solo prequel. And as the trailer started coming out, I don't think I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to see that movie, although still it was a Star Wars movie. I saw it right away. And I remember my reaction being like, that was way better than I thought it would be, although um, I still kind of hold to the same opinion now that I held three viewings ago, which is, for the most part of this movie, I don't think I ever would have been dying for the sequel, except for that one great moment at the end, which we're, I guess, finally going to be able to talk about in uh, a spoiler-filled episode, which is, you know, tune out now. If you don't know, Darth Maul comes back uh, briefly at the end of this. (laughs) And that's the main talking point of this entire movie, something that was really just meant to set up a sequel. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, I have to see the sequel. And it's more than just seeing Darth Maul again. But overall, I think like this is an adequate movie. And um, you sort of said it uh, last week that this is probably your favorite of the Disney movies. And it's funny because uh, you know, I saw this in theaters. Jamie didn't see it with me. I showed it to her on Netflix when it first came out. And then I was rewatching it last night. And she said, oh, yeah, I've seen that movie twice now. I'm like, well, no, you only saw it the one time. She goes, no, I watched it again on my own. <laughs> like, and she said the same thing you did. I think this is actually my favorite of all the Disney movies. So it's weird. I mean, I, I I think for a lot of the people who are more negative on what Disney's done, this is a bit of a return to form. I kind of sit somewhere in the middle. Like, I, I still think this is, you know, a, a very entertaining movie, probably the most all-around entertaining movie, probably the one with the least amount of flaws, but maybe still not as spectacular as I think it could have been. The review, uh, which people can download now via theoznetwork.net, um... Yeah, we were very much on that opinion, I think, kind of what you just summed it up. And it was sort of like, yeah, this isn't a bad movie. This is a decent movie. Uh, it's kind of one that, you know, we didn't need. Uh, and as you said, like, people were like, oh, we really want to know what happens to Han Solo. But then it happens and people are like, oh, no, he's not Harrison Ford. Um, it's yeah. kind of, it's it's interesting that Han Solo is such a beloved character that you were never going to be able to do him complete justice when he's, you know, so iconic with Harrison Ford, I guess. Like, you talked a lot about in that review episode about how uh, Obi-Wan never got, you know, Ewan McGregor not got, never seemingly got that backlash uh, in the prequels. Um, but I just wonder if that's just because Han Solo is more loved. Like, if they did a Luke Skywalker one, I'm sure you'd get a lot of, um, you know, criticism. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's not the point. The, the point, yeah, like, I, same as you, like, I wasn't counting down the days for this to come out. <laughs> like, it wasn't like, oh, my God, I can't wait for Solo. It kind of just snuck up on you. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, Solo's coming out in, like, a week or two. Mm-hmm. And same as you, saw it opening day, basically. I saw it by myself because, at that point, Mallory hadn't seen any of these movies. So, she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to go see that with you. And I left really enjoying it. 
um, a lot more than I thought I was. I, I compared it in our review episode to um, the Jumanji sequel in that I think kind of the hype in the lead up to that, I was like, oh, the trailers look crap. We don't need this. Why are they doing it? And then walking out of Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle going, actually, that was a lot better than I was thinking it was. And that was quite entertaining. So, and I still stand by that this is my favourite Disney uh, Star Wars movie because we'll talk about it next week. And I always say this, I think Rogue One's a little overrated. Uh, Force Awakens is a solid movie. It's a New Hope remade, but it's solid. And The Last Jedi, well, you know, when I have my next bowel movement, I'll talk about that. So, <laughs> it kind of... It, and I think in rewatching because this was only the second time I'd watched this movie. I hadn't seen it since I saw it at the movies. So, I kind of went into this the least I'd seen any Star Wars movie. There are even moments when sort of Mallory would ask me a question and I couldn't actually remember what happened. I'm like, oh, I think this happens. So, there was that. But I have to say, there's one particular moment in this movie I, that made me most nostalgic and feel like the original trilogy than maybe even any of the prequels as well. Like, there's just one section of this movie, just even with, like, the, the music and just everything that's happening, the sort of the banter between the characters and kind of just everything on screen. I'm like, this just really gives you a throwback and it actually really feels... And it's probably the first time I've ever watched this movie, in the two times I've watched it, that I've gone, you know, oh, Alden... And, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to say his name again. Enric, Einric, whatever his name is, Alden... <laughs> Uh, to me, that was the first time I'm like, fuck, yeah, okay, he's Han Solo. Like, that was the first time. So, yeah, I think you said it as well. Like, you watch this again after you've seen it the first time, and it definitely even almost improves. So, and it's still very fresh in people's minds, I think, kind of. It's it's still a fairly new movie, so that sort of legacy and everything about it, it's still, I feel, quite negative based on the fact that everything we wanted is now going to be on Disney Plus coming soon in November. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, and we also, I think, yeah. feel a little bit dirty about Last Jedi when this came out as well, weren't we? I think mm-hmm. I blame The Last Jedi for this movie failing, yeah. let's be honest. And we'll get to that in the review section because I think um, as much as a lot of critics and even fans were very high on this movie or in comparison to their expectations, there was always that acknowledgement of it's too much too soon. And yet I don't quite understand that because this is the Marvel thing. You know, Marvel will release these movies and Solo has no connection to the other movies that came out. Um, I think that The Last Jedi and just the fact that this is so early in Star Wars own expanded universe that doing movies only six months apart was, you know, it was too soon to do that. If you look at the first phase of Marvel movies, the first time they had a movie that was that close together, I think there was a year between Iron Man and the Hulk. Uh, there was probably a year, if not more. Well, yeah, there was another year between the Hulk and Iron Man 2. You had a year between Iron Man 2 and Thor. And then you had like two months between Thor and Captain America. So probably three years before they really started getting into movies more than once a year. And I feel like Star Wars just suffers from it's not put on that same level yet, whereas Marvel can get away with it because they've been doing this forever. Now they can do 16 movies a year. You know, how Disney's getting away with doing live-action remakes, I mean, we got four this year, and they've just announced at the time of recording this that the live-action Lady and the Tramp is going to be coming out this year as well, so we're going to be up to five five live-action Disney movies. I'm still more excited for Lady and the Tramp than I am Maleficent 2 or any other one. I don't know if I'm excited for any Disney movie after The Lion King. Like, I'm... (laughs) permanent boycott live-action Disney remake after that shit. 
As if The Last Jedi didn't cause the first boycott <laughs> of Disney, period. Again, if they um, didn't own everything, I would boycott them permanently, but then I would never watch a movie again. So, Except Spider-Man, so... <laughs> well, let's first get into like how this movie, I guess before this movie came about, as I mentioned, there was always that excitement of, oh, it wouldn't it be great to see a Han Solo prequel uh, until it actually came about, and I think... Fans didn't really connect the dots of their attachment to Harrison Ford. And you said, like, nobody can play him except for Harrison Ford. I read a couple of reviews even this morning that said the same thing. You know, you can't recast as long as Harrison Ford's alive. And I remember a couple of years ago when reboots started becoming a big thing, thinking to myself, what roles could you never recast? And the only two I could really think about is you could never recast Rocky as long as Sylvester Stallone is alive. Once he is dead, people would accept it more. The other one was Indiana Jones. I don't think there's mm. any way to recast Indiana Jones. I wouldn't have put Han Solo at the same level. And I don't think even Harrison Ford puts Han Solo at the same level. I remember this is back in the maybe mid to late 90s seeing Harrison Ford in an interview. And he was asked, like, you know, of all these franchises you've done. Because at that point, he was the only multiple franchise actor there was. You know, we didn't have Chris Pratt's out there or, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s or anybody else that, that – did more than one role in multiple sequels and he had had star wars indiana jones and jack ryan at that point and they asked him you know would you do another jack ryan movie he goes yeah you know we're hoping to but it needs the script needs to be right ultimately he turned down the fourth just because he didn't want to do the story they wanted to do and then they asked him would you do han solo again he goes probably not i don't think there's enough depth to the character you know, I had fun doing it, but it's not something that I feel like needs to be revisited. And they said, would you do Indiana Jones again? He goes, in a split second, I would do it. Like, no <laughs> questions asked. Um, and I feel like the attachment to Harrison Ford comes more towards the attachment to Indiana Jones. And the fact that those two characters are so closely connected with George Lucas and those franchises being similar and just the style of adventure films and coming out around the same time. That I honestly don't think if, if, if Han Solo were the only franchise that Harrison Ford ever had, I don't know if fans would have as much of a problem with this. I feel like he's become so iconic even outside of Han Solo that nobody wants anybody but Harrison Ford in these roles, which is why even somebody like Jack Ryan, which he only did two movies of, and he himself was a replacement for Alec Baldwin, you know, fans had a hard time letting go of him. So they went through Ben Affleck and Chris Pine before eventually they got to something which was not even a movie and a different actor, you know, 20 years later before they could accept him in that. So I think that it's Harrison Ford that people had trouble letting go of and not even so much just the portrayal because I still hold the opinion. I think Alden Ehrreich nailed everything that Harrison Ford did in this except for the voice, which you can't control your own voice. I mean, his performance to me is the best thing about this movie still. I... I, I mean, outside of that one scene, I still struggle to see a lot of it, but... I think, you know, in re-listening to that recap, and I don't know uh, the the review that we did. I don't know if I really kind of computed a lot when you s- try to compare it to Ewan McGregor Obi Wan because I think it is a very good point that you do make. You know, the difference is that yeah, Han Solo is probably a little bit more of a beloved character with Harrison Ford attached to it than Alec Guinness was as Obi Wan. That's not to take away from Alec Guinness, but uh, I think you know, you ask a lot of people who their favorite character is in the original trilogy, and I'm certain majority of people are going to say Han Solo because he's a cool guy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
but I think, like, Mallory watched this movie with me and, like, she really enjoyed it. And then she often would say to me, like, oh, you know, like, he's very Harrison Ford-like. How can you not see that? Like, there, like, you know, look at him the way he's doing that. Very Harrison Ford-like. And again, remember, Mallory hasn't seen the original trilogy yet. So she's kind of going into this as, you know, a new observer. So I think that it's... It, it is still... We can probably say this a lot still. The movie that we didn't necessarily need, but... You know, like, Han Solo is a character in the original trilogy that we've barely got no background on. He's pretty much the only one, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a couple of lines here about the Kessel Run and, you know, where he's from on Corellia and stuff like that. But outside of that, that's it. Um, So I think Mm -hmm. kind of you can also get away with a lot that you get in this movie and maybe it doesn't get the credit for that because this is maybe the only Star Wars movie you can pretty much watch without having any knowledge? As in, okay, you can obviously watch episode one or episode four, you know, without sort of necessarily needing knowledge. There have been that case in history, but I feel Solo is purely the one that if you were just to say to a random person, let's watch a Star Wars movie, and it's like, oh, well, I don't want to watch all the other ones. Just put on Solo. Like, you don't need to kind of need anything else with it. And I think, like, that's what also works with Alden Enric, 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 Alden... E uh, as Han Solo because like you might not have any knowledge that Harrison Ford played Han Solo in the original trilogy so this is a brand new character to you and therefore after watching this and then you go back and see the original trilogy with you know the older Han Solo you know you can probably buy it a little bit more similar to I'm sure you could probably do that with you know old Obi-Wan versus young Obi-Wan so mm-hmm. um, yeah I think that you know it's an interesting point you make with that and I th- yeah, I think that one scene alone has kind of really come around with me and, and kind of selling him with that. But, like, I'm, I'm probably a bit in that category of, like, you know, you're, you're such a Harrison Ford fan, you're so connected to this man, that it's sort of like nothing <laughs> that can be done will completely, uh, you know, sell it for you. But, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a lot more sold on it than I was probably, like, 15 months ago or whenever it was that it came out. Um. One of the things about this movie, I think, is that th- even the things we get to see in his backstory, it's for, even though you said, and I agree with you, that this is a movie you don't have to know anything about the other Star Wars movies. It's, it's, it, it really is its own true standalone story, the opposite of Rogue One, which is meant to be a companion piece to New Hope. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of the exciting moments in this movie, the things that stand out aside from just it's it does have a very generic plot – are those things that fans would have connections to that they know about? Like, how did he get the Falcon? And a lot of things that were told in novels prior to this that they, you know, uh, pay a little bit of tribute to, like the Sabacc game um, and his history with the Empire. These were, like, little details that were revealed mostly in novels after the movies had already been over where fans were like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to see that? So I feel like those things, and, and even the Kessel Run, it's meant just for the fans, and I think that's the other issue with this is that the best things about this movie, a non-fan isn't going to be as excited about. And the things about Han Solo's background don't need to be told. They're just things in his background. I, the best comparison of this is uh, I, I'm not a fan of the Harry Potter movies. Uh, I think I've said that many times before. Jamie's a big fan of the books and movies, uh, and she made me watch all of them. And Honestly, out of like eight Harry Potter movies, I I enjoyed one of them. And it was the third one, and it was mostly because Gary Oldman was in it. Uh, And now that they're doing these Harry Potter prequels, the Fantastic Beasts movie, 
You know, the first one I just thought was very forgettable. The second one we watched was legitimately one of the worst movies I've seen in years. And one of the reasons why was because I kept telling her, like, why did we just get a 10-minute scene on this? And she's like, well, but what you don't understand is that this this lady who turns into a snake, that's a snake who has a role in one of the future novels and books. And I'm like, okay, what's the snake's role in that movie? Well, there was one scene where they, they mentioned that this, this snake was there. I'm like, okay, so now we're seeing the background of something that was in the background in the original movie. I'm like, only the most diehard fans are going to care about this. And they're building an entire franchise around it. And I think that the same could be said with this. You know, if you're not into the Han Solo lore or things like, you know, where the Millennium Falcon came from or, you know, these early days in the Empire, you're just not going to get it. And all these things that we do get in the movie, most of them come from novels. And I, I like that they paid tribute to all those things. But this is what the fans kind of wanted for years. Like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to see that Sabacc game they mentioned in this and that? Uh, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with, you have to see somebody and it's not Harrison Ford doing it. And I just, I don't think that it was the right setup for the movie. But it's just, it's always been fascinating to me how much excitement there was for this. And then when they announced it, which was before even episode seven came out, it was just like dead on arrival. Like, why are they doing a Han Solo prequel? And yet the funny thing is, is that I didn't even realize this was being worked on before it was even sold to Disney. You know, George Lucas was putting together this new trilogy. And again, nobody really knew at the time. But George Lucas's ultimate goal was he wanted to package all of these movies so that he could get a better price when he sold it to Disney. And this was being worked on back then. And then they kind of kept on the shelf. And then as Force Awakens was starting to take shape, they're like, let's start working on the solo movie. I mean, they spent a lot of time developing this movie leading into the troubled production, which you know became the main drama as this unfolded where they hired – uh, Lord and Miller, who are these guys who did the Lego movie and they did the 21 Jump Street movies, mostly known for comedy. And then all of a sudden they come in and they're, they're directing this. The movie goes way over budget, mostly because they shot the majority of this movie and then fired them with like a month to go, replaced them with Ron Howard, and then said, well, we got to reshoot a lot of the stuff they're doing because we don't think it works. Ron Howard ends up getting the credit. They end up having to strike all these deals. This movie was just plagued from day one to get bad publicity and yet, I honestly don't think that the, the quality of the movie suffered as a result of that. The same thing happened with Rogue One, and it feels like Rogue One gets a free pass where Solo doesn't. That's the other thing I don't understand, because Rogue One had about at least a third of the movie reshot, just like Solo did. And Rogue One brought on a new person to do those reshoots, not the original director, the only difference between Rogue One and Solo was that the new director got the screen credit in the end, and on Rogue One he didn't. So it's just this troubled production. I mean, how much of this did you know about leading into it, and what are your opinions on how it actually changed the movie? And did bringing on somebody like Ron Howard also? Because for me, I remember kind of being worried about the movie, you know, the quality of it, when hearing the reasons why these guys were fired, that it was like creatively just in the wrong direction. And then hearing Ron Howard, that's like the dream. This was the guy who George Lu he was George Lucas's original protege. I mean, when Ron Howard was starring in his first movie, first real movie as an adult, American Graffiti, which was George Lucas's breakthrough movie, Ron Howard himself said, I wasn't studying to be a director, but I knew I wanted to do that. So I would just follow George Lucas around and ask him all these questions. And he kind of got his first movie education from this. And then he got one of his first blockbusters, Willow, a movie that George Lucas wrote and it, you know produced and Ron Howard directed. So I kind of had a renewed faith when I knew Ron Howard was coming on to this movie. And yet in the end, I don't know if this movie feels like a Ron Howard movie. It, it does 
still in some ways feel like a movie directed by three people. I remember like when they first released that first image of them all sitting in the Millennium Falcon and then they're all kind of like, you know, this is first day of shooting and everything. And so, um, you know, the level of excitement around that. And the, yeah, when they sort of announced it, they'd fired the original directors and then, because um, it wasn't straight away they announced Ron Howard, wasn't it? Because weren't they searching for someone mm-hmm. for a little bit? Like that yeah, was, it was kind of the news. a couple weeks. Yeah. And like when they announced Ron Howard, like it was kind of one of those moments where you're like, oh, okay, like that's pretty cool. Um, because, you know, I probably haven't seen as many of Ron Howard movies as I probably should have, but I mean, obviously like, you know, Apollo 13, um, <laughs> pretty big fan of that. I've seen A Beautiful Mind a long time ago. Um, and yeah, so, and like- At least somebody's seen Parenthood. Uh, no. Martin? No. Ah, oh, there's one we got to add to the list. <laughs> For some reason I was thinking that was a Lindsay Lohan movie, but no, that's- <laughs> Oh, and Rush, of course, Rush. Rush is a fantastic movie. So, you know, that's- Definitely one I feel we need to cover at some point on the show. But, um, yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting that it sort of all that happened. And a lot of that negativity, I feel, kind of happened around that because I think it happened on Rogue One, but were people at this point maybe just sick of, you know, this happening with Star Wars movies? Because is this also a Star Wars movie thing? Because Disney or anyone behind it knows what the fans are like. So they pretty yeah. much watch it and go, oh, okay, no, we got to change this. Um, yet they somehow let The Last Jedi get released. But um, <laughs> it's, yeah, I that's kind of how I sort of followed it with everything. And I, I'm glad you brought up that Rogue One sort of getting the free pass because, you know, again, I keep saying it. I think it's overrated. It's not a bad movie, but it's just like I don't get this absolute beloved status that Rogue One gets um, based purely on a good 30 minutes of movie. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's next week. So, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting kind of that this did kind of seem to stick to it as soon as it came out, because even then when the movie came out and the reviews, like no review could be opened up with, with like, oh, the movie was, uh, plagued by issues and, you know, Ron Howard did what he could do. And it's like, it's just frustrating to, to have that come into a movie already when, you know, as we've kind of said and trying to establish, you know, at the end of the day, this isn't a bad movie. <laughs> like, but yet the reputation is just seemingly, you know, back from when they did fire um, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. So, yeah. You know, the other thing that um, I, I don't know if this is a a publicity thing they could have done. Obviously, the first trailer, people were like, "Well, that looks okay." You know, uh, the lead up to it. You know, they had these cool retro posters and everything. But I don't know why there wasn't more of a big deal made about the connections to the original movies as well, uh, particularly with, like, the screenwriting. I mean, this movie's written by Lawrence Kasdan and his son, John Can- Kasdan, who Lawrence Kasdan was the co-screenwriter on The Empire Strikes Back. He was the co-screenwriter on Return of the Jedi. He came back and, you know, was the co-screenwriter on Force Awakens. And I remember when this movie was still in development, Lawrence Kasdan saying, you know, uh, Star Wars gave me my career. George Lucas, of course, also hired him to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like George Lucas gave me my career. He since went on to become a big director. And he's like, I felt like I owed it to this franchise to come back, not even as a director, but just as a writer to kind of tie these movies together. And because Empire Strikes Back obviously being the one where Han Solo probably was the lead character and was definitely done the best, he really wanted to go out, make his final Star Wars movie, the Han Solo origin story. And I feel like that's where a lot of the stuff goes right in this movie, is in the writing. There is so much of this character that they just get. And then on top of that, 
this was never mentioned. I didn't even realize it until the credits rolled at the end. But like John Williams not only writes the main theme for this, like he, he composed and even conducted the main theme. So even though this is primarily John Powell's score, who's the guy who did How to Train Your Dragon, who's amazing. John Williams is involved in this movie. He wasn't involved in Rogue One. Mm. And yet none of these things were really made public beforehand. And yet those should be a bigger deal. Like we've got the writer, the writer of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. We've got John Williams doing music for this. And it seemed like there was a lot of ways where they could have countered the bad publicity and there just was no effort put in. But, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the publicity for this movie, it's it's – it's one of those unusual things that I think that most times when there is a troubled production like this, um, that reputation just sort of carries over forever. Uh, and that's the other reason why I'm interested next week to talk about Rogue One, because that seems to be the only movie that really escaped this, like movies over budget and creative differences. Um, and uh, also the, the other funny thing is that even though this movie still has that reputation, nobody's calling for the Lord and Miller cut of this movie. I mean, it doesn't seem like Zack Snyder is beloved for what he did in the DC movies. And yet there's this huge campaign for, we want the Zack Snyder cut of justice league. Nobody's calling for the Lord Miller cut of solos. <laughs> Maybe this Ron Howard's better. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Ron, that's the, like, there's the thing. Ron Howard comes on. That's a big name director. The biggest name director who's ever done a star Wars movie. Barely even mentioned, but, um, uh, there's really not much else to talk about. And we've covered the, the pre-production stuff here. We can, pretty much jump into the movie here can i just ask a quick uh, which, question i i just briefly go. read on wikipedia but what was there much um casting talk around who else would have played solo because i saw christian bale's name mentioned i don't know how you know serious that is but yeah to me this well, seems like one of those roles that you would have a lot of actors attached to it yeah well they um i think it was lord and miller who at one point described this was after alden Ehrenreich was picked they described it as like the most grueling casting process they'd ever been involved in and the toughest decision you'd ever have to make. Um, the Christian Bale role was actually the Woody Harrelson role that he was originally uh, being looked at for. Uh, but Alden Ehrenreich, this was one of these things where every young actor in Hollywood was considered. I, I saw names like Miles Teller being thrown in there. Um, who's the guy from Baby Driver? Uh, Ansel Engort. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it's you funny know, actually you said that because Mallory said to me at one point, "Like, oh, he reminds me of Baby Driver." Yeah, and ultimately, like, I think that Alden Ehrenreich was the right choice. Uh, even though some of those other actors whose names were thrown in there, like Miles Teller's a great actor, Ansel Elgort's a great actor. Uh, I, I do wonder, trying to pronounce these names. There's a reason why in the old days actors were forced to change their name. Because like, <laughs> is, is Alden Ehrenreich ever going to be a major star? Is Ansel Elgort ever going to be a major star when people have to pause before pronouncing their names? <laughs> the one, the one, actually, you know who he really reminds me of, and I really picked up on this one. I don't think you ever watched Dexter, but he reminds me so much of Michael C. Hall, the guy who played Dexter. I know, the like actor, a yeah. younger Michael C. Hall. That's the whole time I'm watching this guy. I'm like, yep, that's who he looks like to me. So if they ever do a well, Dexter and- origin story, there's your man. Oh, nailed it. <laughs> but like Alden Ehrenreich, he was kind of an unknown actor. He had one major starring role, which was a movie called Rules Don't Apply, uh, which Jamie and I started watching. It was it was okay. I don't think we ever even finished the movie. Uh, but the main thing he was known for, which I saw him in, I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers, and they made this movie called Hail Caesar, which was kind of like, uh, well, it's your typical Coen brothers movie, but it was about you know a kidnapping during this massive like 50s 60s epic production something along the lines of cleopatra and then the main star gets kidnapped uh, alden ehrenreich played this character who was supposed to be um 
like your traditional 50s, 40s, 50s leading man, but he just couldn't speak at all. Like he, he just had you know, bad speech impediment and and really unintelligent. And there's this hilarious scene which they basically made into the entire teaser trailer where Ray Fiennes, who played the director, was trying to get him to say a line properly. And he just sounded awful each time he was saying it. Ansel, uh, I keep on calling him Ansel Elgort now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ansel Elgort, there we go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember watching that movie and they have like this huge cast like Ray Fiennes and George Clooney and everything and hating the movie even being a huge Coen Brothers fan but thinking you know that one guy in there is really good so when he was cast even though I didn't really know him for much I remember thinking like oh, okay he was good in you know Hail Caesar so I have faith in him for this uh, but then I guess there was the other castings that made news too like Woody Harrelson I don't think there's anybody who isn't excited anytime Woody Harrelson signs on for a movie uh, you know, Amelia Clark, you know, she was on Game of Thrones. And I think this is before, uh, at least when she was cast, her, that movie she made, Me Before You, yeah. uh, hadn't come out yet. And obviously, I mean, Terminator Genesis, I think that was released after, you know, she was announced in the cast. Or maybe it was before this, but obviously she was most well-known for Game of Thrones. So overall, there was a lot of people excited about the cast of this movie. Tandy uh, Newton. You mentioned the first John picture. John Favreau. Newton, yeah. Yeah, John Favreau. Um, the voice of L3, who oh. I don't even know if you're familiar with the connection she has to another podcast we're doing now. Um, oh, I don't really give a you, shit. I just ignore that character yeah. in this movie. So. Well, <laughs> it, it's, it, there's an interesting tie-in. We'll get to it when we introduce that character. But yeah, there's bad things about this movie, but good things. But let's get into the opening of this, which I remember when um, uh, The Clone Wars came out, the, the Clone Wars animated movie, uh, people being really upset there wouldn't be the opening crawl for the Star Wars movie. And they did something slightly different. And then when Rogue One came out, it was the same thing. They did something slightly different. You know, here again, it's not the opening crawl, but it still gets the write-up. So so we still get to continue with our uh, (laughs) dictate this in your your best overly dramatic certain words in caps thing here. So it begins (laughs) uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, which I'm glad we still have that. And then it is a lawless time. (laughs) <laughs> crime syndicates compete for resources food medicine and hyperfuel <laughs> on the shipbuilding planet of corellia the foul <laughs> lady proxima i love that she's referred to as both foul and a lady in the same sentence forces runaways into a life of crime in exchange for shelter and protection on these mean streets, a young man fights for survival, but yearns to fly among the stars. I just want... There are so many caps in this compared to the other Star Wars movie, and they just seem, like, completely out of place. I don't know why crime syndicates and hyperfuel are both in there. Corellia and Lady Proxima. Like, when you look at the Star Wars opening crawls, it's usually the big things. that The Empire or, you know, Princess Leia, like, major characters... Lady Proxima has like 30 seconds in this movie and she's given it. If if it were me, I would have done like on these mean streets, a young man fights for survival but yearns to fly among the stars. <laughs> How many people do you that think walked be- out as soon as they saw the, word, saw the words fuel? They're like, oh God, another Star Wars movie <laughs> about fuel. I'm out. No. Uh, or foul lady. Like, oh, come on. <laughs> me too. Like, modern age, let's give proper, not these negative female stereotypes. She's not foul. Uh, but anyways, then we get the solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, after, I guess, a brief you know, opening, almost James Bond-like pre-title scene, which is just Han Solo boosting a car. It's very fast and the furious. Uh, we get his dice being hung, which 
I am still trying to find if the dice was an original thing in the original trilogy because I swear this is something they just introduced in the Last Jedi. You saw it once. There's like one scene I think you see it. I can't remember which one of the original ones is, but you do see the dice in one of the scenes in the original trilogy. But it's not something it's ever famous for. Like no, I don't exactly. remember when the last nobody was like it's the dice from that one <laughs> shot. Like so for me the amount of times the dice come into this movie clearly they just had no idea that the naked response last Jedi. because every time i see the dice it's making me think last jedi and yet nothing <laughs> about else about this movie uh do i think about last jedi in fuel um, and dice that's all they know yeah for. fuel dice that's it um but you know we we get the the car boosting thing which uh, i like the the whole gritty streets thing you know corellia if you knew anything about like the Star Wars mythology through the novels and all that, this all came from the backstory. You know, the, the Corellia is basically where the ships were built. This entire planet, I like to think of it as like the docks where they would build, you know, boats back in the old days. Um, or now it would be like going to Michigan and kids <laughs> living on the street in these, you know, junkyards and stuff. And that's um, just the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah. <laughs> um. But uh, even just that opening crawl, the way that they set this up, like, it's essentially the opening here is Oliver Twist. This is, you know, a bunch of homeless kids who get taken in by this one adult who just gets them to pick pockets or, in this case, steal cars or hyperfuel. Uh, eventually, Han comes and we get introduced to Kira, uh, Amelia Clark's character. Neither of them look – I mean, Alden Ehrenreich, I think, is – at the time he made this movie, probably in his mid to late 20s. But I don't think either of them really look – young enough to be like teenagers here uh but you, you get they have this relationship he shows i have this one stolen vial this is enough to get us off the planet so fuel is obviously like a really hot commodity here uh he gets confronted by these goons uh you get the first han solo con act which is i think that's a great han solo thing that they tied into these movies where he's always trying to you know smart mouth his way out of things they take him to lady proxima so we get this almost looks like a sewer with all these kids everywhere and Lady Proxima, the, I don't even know what you would call her, giant eel lady <laughs> comes out of there. Um, you know, th they're saying, like, he he botched this deal he was supposed to be part of. He's like, I didn't walk away with nothing. Um, and then one of my favorite parts of this entire movie, well, she, I love when she's talking about, you know, uh, he, running away. He's not going to escape with his life. And he goes, well, it means something to me, like his life. <laughs> uh, but when... Uh, basically saying like you know takira don't throw everything away on han uh and he's like you know i've got this it's a thermal detonator and, then, <laughs> and it's like that's a rock you just made that clicking sound with your mouth <laughs> again it's a, you can imagine han solo this is what he does we what that was one of the things lawrence kazan i think it was so good bringing him into the force awakens that he got these little things about the Han Solo character that even like a super fan like JJ Abrams would never have written in when he's trying to talk his way out when he's being surrounded by all of them. It's like, you know, it's like, have I ever double crossed you before? And then even Chewie's like, yeah, it's like, what was the second time? You know, this is one of those moments, <laughs> but you imagine like as a kid, he's going to be faking a thermal detonator with clicking sounds to his mouth. Um, he ends up making his way out of there. We get a little, speeder chase i like seeing speeders that aren't flying this is like an actual car chase here through the streets uh and one of the things that i really like about this movie is the art direction i gotta say i really don't like the cinematography in this movie like no matter what planet they're on it just all looks too dull and cloudy and dreary and i feel like they did so much in the art direction of this movie and in the character designs there's so many great aliens in the background and 
even just the speeder that they're driving, it looks like a car from, you know, I don't know, the late 60s, early 70s. It feels like it would have fit in 10 years prior to A New Hope, something out of the 70s. It just looks like a classic car, and yet the cinematography just doesn't let you appreciate this because everything looks kind of gross in this movie. Um, but they have this quick little chase as they're trying to uh, get through. They crash through the gates of uh, this spaceport. There's a little, you know, droid. It's like, you must follow the proper. And then it gets knocked <laughs> off the road protocol. Um, you, you get them, you know, fitting through this really tight space in this this alley uh, where she's like, we're not going to fit. We're going to fit. We're going to fit. And it almost makes its way through and eventually gets crammed at the end. <laughs> um, I, I love that when she's saying that, it's like, it's too tight. We're not going to fit. He actually gives the line, oh, yeah, watch this. Which, again, somebody who's seen the original Star Wars movie, that's like, a hello there moment like we had with obi-wan last week you know the the uh thing i think it was in the empire strikes back where it's like you know this bucket of bolts never gonna get us past the blockade oh yeah watch this and then it just stalls it's like what's what little lines like that there's a ton of them in this movie um they get into the two terminal we get more of those little lines that you know star wars fans are gonna appreciate like there's a stormtrooper in the background that uh is trying to move people through where he actually goes, move along, move along, which is <laughs> what the storm says in a new hope. Um, and you know, Kira is basically trying to talk to Han. He's saying, you know, we're free now. And she goes, yeah, but out there, there's no protection. He's talking about bribing the, the, the guard, I guess at the airport of the terminal security with the fuel. Uh, they're slowly trying to make their way through the line as we're seeing all these stormtroopers grabbing people everywhere. I like this part where, where they're setting up, Though a world that's slightly different, and similar to what Rogue One did, we have these things that are introduced in the movies. You don't really know about the oppression of the Empire. You know, everybody talks about the oppression of the Empire, even on Tatooine. You know, like, oh, oh I'm, I, it's not that I like the Empire; I hate it. But yet, you never see the Empire really oppressing anybody. They just seem like a police force. And here, you get like these people who are just trying to get off this crummy world, and they're tackling people to the ground who are trying to sneak through security. It feels like, you know, the Nazi Germany here. Um, and as they're racing to get through there and Han's trying to bribe her with the hyperfleet, you also get, like, these imperial officers. Like, they're poor, too. You know, you can bribe these people. It's like you go to some of these third world countries and you hear about the fact that, you know, you can do anything if you just slip $10 to a police officer and you're getting that here, too. Except uh, getting and, entry but- to Jane's Bond hotels in the Bahamas. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's not third world. That's like paradise. It's called Paradise Island. Uh, I-, I wish that I had gotten one of these guards. That's what I want. <laughs> want to bribe them with a vial of gasoline or something like that. Jamie would have been this kidnapped, is... but you would have gotten into the hotel. Yeah, exactly. This is great Canadian gasoline from <laughs> Shell or Esso. <laughs> move along, move along. Uh, Kira ends up getting grabbed just as they make their way through, so Han gets separated with her, which really sets up the whole movie. Uh, we get troopers uh, rounding up more people. Han can't get back in. Kira can't get back you know, out. Uh, Han still has to figure out a way how he's going to get through this. He doesn't have a boarding pass or money or anything now. He sees this recruitment video. I love that the Empire has like a recruitment station there. And that this recruitment joined the Empire now and is playing the Imperial March. Like <laughs> an in-joke in the Star Wars movie um that's fantastic uh han going up to this recruitment thing he says you know i'm gonna be a pilot and they're like yeah a lot of people want to be pilots the majority of them just to make their way into the infantry and it's like what's your name he goes it's han it's like what, what's your last name who are your people you know i don't have any han solo which a lot of people <laughs> criticize that like 
oh, great. So his name is just – he doesn't have a name. That's the perfect way to give him his name in my opinion. Like I remember seeing that and being like, that's just great. Like you don't think about where does his name come from and you're like, his name is he doesn't have a name. It's like you know, an X on the end of your name. Like what's your name? Han X. Like, let's just give him the name Solo. But you also know that the majority of the people on this planet at this recruitment station probably also don't have names. So are, is, are there lots of other Solos in the galaxy and they're all from Corellia? I don't know. Uh, and I also just love the whole idea that he spends this entire movie calling himself a pilot and never actually being recognized as a pilot. He's like, I'm going to be a pilot. And they cut to three years later. And what is he? He's in the infantry. We get him on a battlefield. Uh, we get the a little bit of the Imperial March playing again as you know these stormtroopers and these. I love seeing Imperial agents that aren't just stormtroopers. Like these guys, just we're not even going to be armor. You're so expendable. And uh, as the battle's just going bad, you know, you get like a Saving Private Ryan moment. It's like who's in charge here? And it's like you are. And we get introduced to Woody Harrelson, Beckett. Han notices he's got these blaster marks on his chest. There's something odd about this. He sees, you know, this guy wearing a helmet who's pulling up his pants with extra hands in the back. So you get there's something going on here. Tandy Newton's introduced. Uh, after the battle's over, we see them in these trenches, which, again, all these little throwbacks. Like, you, you know that there's war going on in A New Hope. And now we're actually getting to see war going on with the empires involved in. And again, more oppression. There's even talk about as this one commanding officer is there and Han's talking back a little and he's saying, like, you know, we're the hostels here. Like, these people are just defending their land um, after they said, we're going to bring peace and prosperity to the galaxy, which an Anakin line from episode three, throwing in there. Um, Han has this moment where he tries to talk his way into Beckett's crew because he realizes there's something off with him. He's like, you know, you got blaster marks there. So unless you can survive a blast, I'm guessing that's a stolen uniform. And this Ardinian here is like, well, I'm not an Ardinian. It's like. You pulled up your pants with a couple of extra arms in the back, and then they basically label him as a deserter. So he gets, uh, I guess, in prison, put into chains. They throw him in with the beast. You get these Imperial officers just sacrificing him. The beast emerges, and here is one of the best moments in this movie. And one of the things that I think would be the hardest to pull off, like how does Han meet Chewie? And any fan fiction can just write, oh, they met here or they met here. And... They introduce him in a way that, like, you never would have thought of being like, this is perfect. They're filthy. They're in this mud pit. And he's being sacrificed to this Wookiee the way that Luke was sacrificed to the Rancor in Jabba's palace. And Chewie's just trying to beat him to pieces. And then you get that Han speaks a little bit of uh, Kashiki. I don't even know what the language they call it is. Like, hi, Kashiki. Let's say the Kashiki and National Anthem. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we get Chewbacca here, which the last time we saw him was in episode three. So I like filling in the gaps in these movies. And we see him in episode three, and we think he's going to make a getaway. And then you realize, no, he was just in prison with the rest of the Wookiees. And he's probably just been you know stuck in this pit for who knows how many years. Uh, Han talks is again, cons and fast talks his way out of it. It's a perfect Han Solo thing as you realize he speaks the same language, which all of you fanboys out there who saw Ray, who knew how to speak the Wookiee language and assume she's got to be, you know, a Skywalker because how else would she know the language? A lot of people speak this language. Han speaks it here and he's just from the mean streets of Corellia. Uh, and here's where he calls him the um, mangy Kashiki and Moof Milker, which <laughs> I always love that line it's like the nerf herder comment but like to me moof milker sounds like i don't know either a racial slur or a dirty word like <laughs> right it's just it, it 
yeah, well, we're running into all these things. Like, how could you say that? Like, you imagine somebody in so- if this were a movie in a, a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> this would be something that twenty years from now they'd be like, "Oh man, you got to go back and re-edit that. You can't call somebody a <laughs> milker." Like this, is so dated. Um, that's my new favorite. Like you know, <laughs> racial slur, moof milker, along with whatever the <laughs> you be dri- one was. Dri- driving around in the main streets of Winnipeg. I'll get out of the way, you moof milkers. Uh, <laughs> moof milker. <laughs> what I'm did you the- call me? <laughs> the time I'm in the car with you and those uh, people walked in front, and you're like Ben. Don't be racist. I should have went in the window going, "You moof milkers." <laughs> Milkers. <laughs> I just want to call somebody a move milker just to see if they accuse me of being a racist. <laughs> just like answer um, the phone next time at work. Like, welcome to insert business name here. You move milker. Colin speaking. <laughs> um, I'm I'm, all, I'm not even joking. All day I've been wanting to call Jamie a move milker just to see if she would like look at me the wrong way. Like, what did you say? <laughs> Don't even know what it is. Probably um, gets her excited. It's probably how she got pregnant. <laughs> She's like, mmm. <laughs> Colin, triplets time. Mm. Ready to go again, I see. <laughs> uh, but I love also Han being able to speak this language and not be so fluent that, you know, when he's trying to communicate, he's like, <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> eventually he's just like, look, like look. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. He goes like, look, big stick, just trying to get him to knock this thing over. And they basically manages uh, come up with this fake fight uh, so they could break free. It's a little too easy how quickly they're able to break three. And then, um, you know, he says, like, I've got very good friends who are willing to get us off here. These people who already got him imprisoned. Uh, they eventually flag down the ship. The Ardinian co-pilot, Rio, he's like, uh, come on, I'm liking this kid. They take him on board. And then we get the other greatest scene that you never thought you would get, which is Han Solo in the shower and Chewbacca just steps in naked to the shower with Han Solo. You know, you could have waited. Uh, followed by the first real scene between Han and Chewie. You know, the first friendship scene here where they're uh, you know, talking about, you know, we're going to have this quick score and then we can go on our way. And uh, uh, this movie moves by at a really fast pace for something that's longer than a lot of Star Wars movies. Like I counted here this entire opening section and up until they met Chewbacca. Uh, or, or left on the ship here with uh, Woody Harrelson. It's 25 minutes of the movie at this point, and this isn't something where there's a lot of opening credits or a big pre-title scene. Like, this is all the opening act, the opening story of the movie. 25 minutes have passed, and yet this feels like it's 15 minutes of movie, which I think is great. Um, the best thing about this really is Han's introduction to Chewie, and the, the background that before George Lucas even started developing this as a movie, I mentioned last week, you know, his plans post-Return of the Jedi really came down to the Clone Wars animated series and then the Star Wars Underworld TV live-action series that never happened. And the origins of Han and Chewie uh, were supposed to be on that Underworld TV show. It wasn't going to be a main story or main character, but he wanted to show the Emperor and Vader at some point throughout the show and show you know what it was like trying to restabilize the galaxy after the you know the, the Clone Wars. And then he wanted to show how Han and Chewie met each other. But this is just perfect. Like, them meeting, trying to kill each other, being sacrificed together. The fact that they're just filthy in there. The fact they're showering together. Like, that's the highlight of the movie for me. Uh, a shower scene between a Wookiee and um, Ansel Engort. That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's just Ansel. I can, I can say that name. <laughs> Let's just keep calling him Ansel Elgord for the rest of the movie. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny how like people 
again, they're Star Wars fans, let's be honest, they're going to find something to complain about, but um, how they complain about, like, oh, there's no opening text crawl, and, you know, it doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie. Like, I, I like the fact that they keep these story movies separate, that... You know, I wasn't one, even with Rogue One, to think, like, oh, my God. Like, it's not like me in the Bond films of the Craig era with the gun barrel. Like, to me, this is okay outside of the episodes not to have it because these aren't part of the episodes. They're filler movies in between what we're getting. So, they're separate movies to me. So, I think that that's a good thing that we don't have the opening crawl. And it's still good that we get a bit of text here, obviously, to explain a little bit as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I didn't know a whole lot about uh, Corellia because <laughs> I don't know how to read. So I hadn't really read a whole lot or seen a whole lot in regards to kind of his backstory and everything. But I like this planet. I like sort of this style of a shipyard where they build the ships and everything like that. Like it's sort of, you know, as, as we constantly complained about the sequel trilogy, you know, a lot of these planets don't really feel unique or special. And this is just kind of something different. And you'd have places like this in the galaxy, wouldn't you? Like you know, shitholes. Um, this is, yeah. this is, this is the Winnipeg of the galaxy. Um, <laughs> Corellia. <laughs> Go the jets. Um, but yeah, so I like kind of this setup and I like kind of how we've got, yeah, Han fast and the furious meeting this worm lady. And I mean, she's kind of cool. Like I like this sort of setup with this worm lady and just this, you know, that's in itself. I want to see more of that. Like I want to see more about her. Uh, but yeah, I love that moment, the whole like, you know, oh, I have a thermal detonator, click. <laughs> no, that's a rock. You just made a clicking sound with your mouth. <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, and this whole opening chase sequence is cool. Like, you're right. Like, I think this this movie really boils down to what? Three set pieces? And yeah. it all, like, in our review, we kind of talked about how a lot of this maybe isn't explained very well why they're doing it, and it kind of just happens. And I still think that's a bit of the case. Like, I think it improves on a second viewing when you, I guess, know what's happening. But at the same time, I still feel like some of this stuff just kind of happens. Like, do we really need this big opening sort of war sequence of them meeting that way? They could have met in any other way possible. Like, it's just kind of, it's a, it's it's there. But I'm not complaining, because like, it's still very entertaining. I still wish we kind of had the big wall, the wall letters like we did on <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. But yeah, stunning, stunning, <laughs> stunning wall, <laughs> foul, <laughs> Moof milker. <laughs> uh, no, that would be great. The 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 stunning foul Moof milker, Lady Proxima, <laughs> or just on the uh, the recruitment video. Are you feeling stunning today to fight yeah. the war, you moof milker? Then join the Empire! Don't um, be a moof milker. Be a patriot. <laughs> we want you, you moof milker. Um, <laughs> I, like, I like the whole sort of sequence when they're going through this, yeah, share with all the stormtroopers. Like, I agree with you. It's kind of, it's, it's cool to be able to see elements of the Empire because... You, you know, there is so much of this touched upon, but if you kind of analyse the original trilogy, it's kind of like, well, I mean, they destroyed Alderaan, but did the Empire really do anything else that bad? Like, I mean, yeah, it's just... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just hanging out in their Death Star. Like, I'm sure, you know, all the workers wake up in the morning, just... go to work, put on their suits and check in, check out, call their wives, go back home. Like, you know, like... <laughs> well, but think, these you know, are the in... bastards. <laughs> but, like, I think that's one of the things that this movie doesn't get enough credit for, you know, because in Rogue One, it is so close to A New Hope, and also it is involving the war between two armies. So I don't think Star Wars really ever showed you much of, 
why does the empire need to be replaced other than the fact that it's like, well, the rebellion is going to be less oppressive because we say so. Yeah, and it, it's almost like, you know, like I said, they were a police force. If you have a bunch of movies and people had no idea what North American society is like and you have the police force and you're like, well, it's the police force. What's so bad about it? But if you show in one of those movies in that franchise, you know, 1992 Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> Rodney King and and the riots and stuff like that, you're going to start to get why, you know, people feel that something like that needs to be overthrown and something like that needs to be replaced or there needs to be this overhaul. And that's what even Rogue One, I don't think, got us enough of because it was just one army against another army. This is like the people versus the empire. Well, you think about too, and I think this is maybe also the one Star Wars movie where the timeline, because I think we talked a lot about that in the review, it's kind of like, well, like when is this set? It's kind of, you know, it's never really fully mentioned is it that this is what about 10 years after revenge of the sith isn't it or something like that so you know it's still kind of fresh and and all we've had like if you're watching this chronologically and you think about the universe of star wars right now like we've had uh palpatine at the end of revenge of sith you know like i will form the galactic empire and like you know like he's basically made it a dictator state the the galaxy Mm -hmm. like it's always a thing that you compare it to like nazi germany or things like that but like any country in the world that has a dictator now or has had one in history like they've had a certain amount of freedom or life before all of a sudden somebody comes in control and is like no i'm a dictator now boom so everything is going to get turned on its head so i think yeah like we don't ever really get to see a lot of that in this universe so it's great to kind of see this and you know the struggles that people would have because this is what happens when a dictator comes in control like Mm -hmm. you know people are oppressed people have to struggle to get basic freedoms and so you're going to have situations like this so yeah i agree with you like it doesn't seem to get a lot of credit to kind of see that because it is fascinating to me to see this like star wars is a living breathing universe and to see elements like this it's it's kind of it adds to it and it's it's really good so yeah i agree and i I like kind of you know bribing this one guard who's kind of like oh yes all right i'll have some fuel like you know don't want my ship to run out of fuel one time in the future and have to be in a slow chase with like you know somebody that might be a a burden so (laughs) (laughs) i just love it the ending thought of, that would be a burden. <laughs> <laughs> you move, Milka. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, like, I have just mentioned Amelia Clark. like, again, if people haven't heard her a thousand times already in the show, I've never seen Game of Thrones. So this was pro. I think I'd seen that, um, oh, what was that movie you mentioned she's in before? The Me Before You. Thank you, I was thinking that. I I don't know if I'd seen bits, because Mallory loves that movie, so I don't know if I'd seen bits and pieces before I'd seen Solo, it was afterwards, but like to me, she's just a new actor when I'm watching this, so like I don't really have a whole raft of opinions, because I hadn't seen Terminator Genesis at that point either, so I'm not coming into this going like, oh, it's that chick from Game of Thrones, insert character name here, you know, like it kind of, it doesn't bother me, so... Um, yeah, she's fine. I don't mind her. Um, anyway, but I, I love, I love the fact that basically in Han Solo's backstory, he joins the Empire. Uh, (laughs) And that was one of the things that was always there. That was something that was mentioned even in the novels. How it's done, I think, is the best thing about it here. That it's not like, oh, he joined the Empire. It's like, no, he actually joined the Empire because he had no choice. It was his only way to actually get off the planet. And you kind of get that, don't you, in the war scenes. 
where like he's sort of like implying like you know oh, uh bringing peace to the galaxy or whatever like that's what we do or something like that it's like well are you like it's kind of you know him speaking against it i i actually i'm with you with the guy who gives him his name because I, I just think that guy as an actor is brilliant. Just the way he kind of like, you know, who are your people? And he's like, I don't have any people. And just the way he pauses and he's like, Han. And he has that look on his face. Like he's so impressed yeah. with himself. Like, solo. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's be honest. That actor, whoever he is, he basically got the coolest role in this whole movie. Like, dude, I'm the guy who gives Han Solo his name. Yeah. Like, I'm canon in Star Wars as a person who does this. <laughs> like... Come on, you would relish that as an actor, that you're that important in this whole grand scheme of things. Um, and yeah, I, I love sort of the introduction to uh, Woody Harrelson or that. Like, when he says, like, who's in charge? Oh, I guess you are or something. And they just start laughing. Like, <laughs> like I'm in charge. So, yeah, and Tandy Newton, so wasted in oh. this movie. Like, oh, I well, love her. Well, um, we'll get to that in a second, because I have some you know opinions on that. But... Um... Uh, anything else you want to talk about there? Because I oh, have a the couple of I should, I should just mention the Chewy scene is epic. And mm. yeah, I, I agree with you. I think kind of how else are you going to introduce these two? And I saw a lot of complaints about like, oh, you know, so basically he's a monster who could kill people, yet you never see this. Like, do we not get a line in A New Hope basically saying he can yeah. rip an arm out of your socket? And we kind of get a throwback to that in this. Like, I don't understand why people complain that Chewbacca is like, oh, he's, he doesn't kill people. It's like, it's literally in the original trilogy that he will rip your socket out of your arms it like i'm scared of a wookie because i hear that line i think that's the point and also i I like the fact that we have from revenge of the sith kind of this you know wookie kashyyyk cameo section but i like that sort of timeline where because they say in revenge of the sith like we can't lose kashyyyk so obviously what has happened is in that time, the Empire has gone and taken Kashyyyk because they've enslaved the Wookiees. We get that in this. So I, I like that knowledge that the Empire is kind of such a dick place. Like, and I, I like this is probably going to sound like I'm trying to be funny, but I'm not legitimately trying to be funny. It's kind of that comparison with the dictatorship. It's, it's almost like, you know, Kashyyyk and the Wookiees maybe are kind of like the Jews in World War Two. Like that's kind of what the Nazis were doing with that. Maybe yeah. like that could just be a, a weird comparison, but here they are enslaving them and basically just doing this in, very similar ways that uh, the the Nazis did that with the Jewish people. Obviously, you know, Hitler didn't make the Jewish people, like, kill people for sport. I don't know. Maybe they did. But, yeah, it's it's there it is. That's my weird comparison for the episode. <laughs> also, I, I can't believe I almost forgot to mention this, but we don't even get the introduction of Chewie's name. We get it through a joke mm. where he's like, what's your name? He goes, Chewbacca. Uh, I'm going to have to think of a nickname for you, <laughs> which is great. Like, it's not like, I'm going to call you Chewy. It's like, who are your people? And it's like, hmm. Baka. I'm going to call you Chewbacca Solo. You know, it's just like the the fact that he doesn't even give him the nickname. I don't even – I can't even tell you if in this movie we hear the name Chewbacca or Chewy at any point. It's just one of these things that happens off camera, which is great. And – just the whole introduction to Han Solo and Chewie, it's it's sort of like, hey, you need some help, I need some help. And like you mentioned, Chewie is brought into this original trilogy or the original trilogy in a way where he's supposed to be feared. You know, even aside from the whole, it's like, don't, don't do that. You know, uh, Wookiees are known to pull people's arms out of their sockets and they lose. Um, well, he even says Wookiees are known to do that. You also get this idea that maybe because Wookiees have been enslaved for, you know, 20 years or whatever uh it's just this is like some urban myth it's the way that you know people would talk about 
the Jews or any other you know uh, type of ethnicity that you're not familiar with and say, oh, this is what these people are like, so you can't trust them. Uh, that's another thing that's potentially uh, possible in here. But Chewie has been made into a beast here, and he, he's he's not treated like – I think that's one of the interesting things when you tie all these movies together, not for Chewbacca's story, but just the Wookiees, seeing them as senators in the beginning of The Phantom Menace – Seeing them as soldiers defending their planet on Kashyyyk in this pivotal war in Episode 3, and then seeing here where they're just imprisoned, and then Chewbacca's the only one, and they just sort of talk about Wookiees, like, oh, Wookiees are known to do this. You just get – they're like a society that's been wiped out from existence just through the empires. like, forget everything you know about Wookiees. And you wonder if by the time the original trilogy comes, if anybody even realizes Wookiees at any point were yeah. civilized and had their own society. And that's one of the things that I think is interesting – when we get to episode seven, when the force is like this, I thought that was just a myth. You don't realize that even in today's world, there are things about the 60s and 70s and 80s that everybody's forgotten. And it's only when somebody who was around at that time says, you know what? Nobody talks about this, but this is what it was like then. You know, the Wookiees may just have been forgotten all that time. The Wookiees were the Soviet Union. <laughs> the Soviet yeah. Union existed <laughs> in the 60s and 70s? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. The, the Maple Leafs uh, won? What? (laughs) No, Um, I don't believe it. One other thing I want to talk about was uh, like Hansel's introduction here. I remember when people started talking about a solo origin film, like we're talking before, you know, George Lucas even started thinking about episode seven, eight, and nine or selling Lucasfilm or any of that. When people, oh, I'd love to see a Han Solo origin film. Or when people would be saying, yeah, well, maybe they could have Han Solo introduced in episode one, two, and three. And I remember I used to analyze the Star Wars movies so closely to realize some of the things that George Lucas did that were not even intentional, but he had a purpose behind, like the introduction of characters. In A New Hope, he always wanted, even though he didn't think he would ever get to even episodes five and six, let alone episode one, two, and three, he wanted this to be like a world you were dropped in where the audience didn't know what was going on, where there was this history where you would that the reason he titled it episode four was more to do with the fact that he wanted the audience to feel like you're in the middle of a story that you don't know the beginning of, and he didn't want to sit there and explain all the history behind things. Yet you can see when characters are introduced in episode four, it plays in a way whether you knew the characters or not. And the funny thing is, is that for people who say that, well, he never actually had a background, he never knew he wanted to do episodes one, two, or three, he made that all up later on. Go back and watch A New Hope. When Luke is introduced, he's introduced in this way without somebody actually even saying, that's Luke Skywalker. He's introduced in a way as if the audience is supposed to be like, wait, that's the kid. And the way Obi-Wan's introduced, it's like, oh, that's Obi-Wan. Princess Leia, same thing, Darth Vader. The characters who never ended up getting introduced in episodes one, two, and three are the only ones in A New Hope that are introduced by name. Han Solo is dropped into A New Hope, and then he's like, Han Solo, Captain of the Millennium Falcon, as if the audience needed to be introduced to him for the first time. Governor Tarkin, as if the audience had to be introduced to him for the first time. All the other characters, it plays so perfectly, they were introduced before. And I think that's the one reason why I don't like the idea about having a Han Solo backstory, because I think A New Hope is the right place in the story for him to be introduced. And yet it's the opposite here. Han's introduction is as if the audience already knows him. And that, that's just kind of where I almost wish that we had gotten a more epic Han Solo introduction other than just him being the guy who's stealing a car in the opening scene. But that's like a small complaint. I don't know if you have any opinions on how he's dropped into this movie or if you wanted something bigger out of him. Uh, not really. I mean, I think kind of you made a very good point there with the way people are introduced in like A New Hope and everything. But 
No, I don't. I I I see your point, and I don't disagree with it. Um. So the next section of the movie, this is when they officially join Woody Harrelson's crew, which really is just a, a crew of three people pulling off one heist. Um. I did want to quickly mention the the uh, character Rio, who's the the pilot here. Uh, he's the only alien we really get in this movie. That's another thing I I feel like this ties more to the original trilogy, just that it's almost all human characters. You get the one alien character, you know, Rio here is like the Chewbacca. You get the one droid character, like you know, three P and R two. It's not like in the prequels where half the people are aliens or droids, um, but. There's something about the look of this character that I like and something about the look of the character I don't like. I feel like they went out of their way to make him look less CGI because I think in the the prequels, so many of the characters that were designed to be CGI from the beginning, they just look different from the characters we know that were originally designed to be animatronics or puppets or guys in masks in episodes 4, 5, and 6. And one of the things I think worked so well that we didn't actually even talk much about in uh, the, the prequels was how difficult it was for them to get Yoda to a point where they could make him more expressive but still make him look like he was a puppet. And it went as far as I think the way they introduced Yoda um, to George Lucas, the idea of the CGI Yoda, was they took the first scene he has with Luke in The Empire Strikes Back and they did that scene putting a digital Yoda into it to see if they could get the results of he looks like a puppet. And they would go out of their way to do things with the CGI Yoda that only the puppet did. Like, because of all the mechanisms and the motors inside the animatronic Yoda head, his ears would vibrate when he talked. Like, they would shake, and they would animate that in there. And I feel like they they went to the lengths with the Rio character here to make him look almost stiff and like a puppet. But I think it's just the movement of him being able to climb around on all the arms that still looks too CGI to me. Um, although it's still kind of a fun character. Like I like this heist crew and you mentioned like with Tandy Newton, both her and Rio, they're going to be gone very quickly. Um, this heist scene, I'll talk about it quickly first though. Uh, they get the campfire scene, setting it up. They do a little bit of recon for the job, looking through the binoculars. We get the first mention of Emphis Nest here, which always throws me off. I feel like this character Emphis Nest isn't given a proper enough introduction because even watching this for the third time, Every time they say Emphis Nest, I'm thinking this is like a group, like a crime family. Mm, it would be mm-hmm. like saying the Corleones uh, or Crimson Dawn, uh, but it's actually supposed to be a character. They mention, you know, as they're debating whether they should take Han and Chewie on, they mention Bosk, which uh, I don't know if you picked up on that name or know enough about it. The Bosk is one of the bounty hunters in The Empire Strikes Back, the one that kind of looks like a lizard and just sort of growls and drools. Oh, yeah. Uh, which it was a character that they even talked about bringing in in the, the solo sequel movies because they mentioned it here. Um, and I love when they are debating whether to take them on, saying, like, yo, are you going to leave this entire operation in the hands of morons? They're referring to Han and Chewie as morons. And Woody Harrelson's like, you guys aren't morons, are you? <laughs> Which kind of made me laugh. Um, we get Han talking about, you know, I need to go back to Corellia. Which is almost very similar to like Ray saying, I need to go, you know, back to Jakuna. Like everybody's like, why back to Corellia? And, you know, they're saying, oh, you know, it's to find a girl or whatever. This is one of the things that I think works about Han and Kira's relationship. Um, even though I don't think they necessarily have, you know, the, the greatest chemistry here. Um, I, I'm going to be more critical of Amelia Clark, which is weird because, like, I, I think Amelia Clark is amazing and one of the best things on Game of Thrones. But I just, I don't think that blockbusters is her thing. Uh, but the way it's written here, Han going back for a girl, to me, this is very much like Casino Royale. 
I'll explain a little more because that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, I always read the book of Casino Royale first. So when people would talk about James Bond, you know, just being a womanizer and, you know, just this chauvinistic pig, I would always tell them, like, if you read the book Casino Royale, like, there was a reason he was written that way in everything post Casino Royale. It was because he was betrayed. And I like this idea that young Han would be so loyal to this one girl because she was the only friend or, in this case, girlfriend he had. He wanted to get back to the one person who who was there for him when he was growing up. Um, and why is he such a jerk later on? Why does he want to have nothing to do with the rebellion? Why doesn't he care about saving other people's lives? Why is he the the scoundrel, you know, the rogue scoundrel uh, that he is in A New Hope and even Empire Strikes Back? It's because the one person he trusted ultimately betrayed him, which is something I think would have been really fun to get into in you know, the second or third solo movie that may not ever happen now. Uh, but the fact that he just wants to get back for this girl, it, it's something that's different from Han Solo we don't see, but I like it. And I think it's played really well. It doesn't feel like a softened Han Solo in any way. Um, we, we get that Chewie's looking for, I can't tell if he said his tribe or family. Is there a difference? Which uh, Chewie's little backstory there, they got separate from Mala uh, and Itchy and uh, Grandpa or whatever their names were. I think, oh, did we even my. mention that in the review episode? It, we, we, I think we mentioned that in the reviews that they, they mentioned here and that's mala uh we never get to see mala here though uh, and then we get into the train heist which are, this was i guess the big part of the teaser trailer that everybody assumed originally would be the climax of the movie and really is kind of the opening of the movie here uh and, and this is where i think the tone of the movie sets it apart i remember them referring to rogue one before it came out as like saving private ryan or black hawk down just in the star wars universe and like you said with that opening crawl you know you like that it's different from the episodes i think that's so important that these movies aren't just another star wars movie that they're treated as something different because they are spin-offs and whereas black hawk down was you know or um rogue one was made to be very black hawk down like this was made to be like you know a heist movie crossed with a western and this has kind of both of it here it's almost like a western train robbery even the way that they fire their guns it's very western like you get like the heist aspect of it as well uh, like it's an oceans movie um, i think this train action sequence is really good i don't think it's anything spectacular but it's still fun uh, they're basically just trying to separate the cars here to steal the hyperfuel. everybody everybody gets their role and it makes sense that they would need all these people for this as han and chewie are kind of trying to separate these cars rio's flying the ship to lift the stolen car away uh tandy newton what is her character in val She's there to blow up the bridge later on. Uh, I, I like that they all have their separation and we don't really lose track of what their purposes are here. Uh, the big thing that obviously happens in this action sequence is, you know, the death of Rio's character and the death of Val. Um, a lot of people did complain that they got Tandy Newton here and that she dies so soon. This is almost like the the Game of Thrones things where the, the expectations of Amelia Clark being in this because she's Amelia Clark set the bar too high when Tandy Newton signed on to this, I mean, she'd done the Westworld TV show. I don't think the Westworld TV show at the point she signed on was a big deal yet. If you had said Tandy Newton's in a star Wars movie before the Westworld show really hit it big, I don't think anybody really cared. It's just, she's had this huge career revival since then. Uh, you know, both of us, you know, as we said, the mission impossible movies were big Tandy Newton fans, but I'm a little bit torn on this because whereas I agree with you, it would have been great to have her in more of this movie with both her and Rio dying so soon, 
it's kind of one of the only surprising things. This movie got so much criticism for just not taking any risks in the story, even being called so predictable that you have the two major characters like this getting killed so soon in the movie. It was a bit of a shock when I saw it and it almost works better that you have a bigger star like Tandy Newton dying so soon. Having said that, I think her character really was fresh in this movie and it would have been fun to see this larger crew uh, especially with all the different personalities, because we really get more personalities out of these five crew members here in the opening heist than we get out of the entire cast of Force Awakens and The Last Jedi combined. I mean, we've said so many times, like, Poe kind of barely starts to take off as a character by Last Jedi. You know, th- th- they struggle a little bit with Finn by the time you get to The Last Jedi. He sort of was slightly interesting, but not much, and that Ray. You know, it, the mystique around her character is more interesting than her character. And yet, in a few scenes here, Rio and Val are characters I would love to have followed for an entire movie. But I still do like the surprise there. Um, I like that after the, the bridge blows up, Val kind of sacrifices herself. Um, we, we get the um, uh, the the mentions of the Emphis Nest being like pirates and marauders, which, of course, is going to become important later on. Uh this whole idea that like the empire is dealing with these crime families and these mafias as well is fun that, you know, it's not a rebellion. It's their big battle at this point. It's, it's pirates. It's, it's criminals. Uh, the first mention of Crimson Dawn comes up after, you know, we get the tug of war over the, um, uh, the, the hyperfuel car and they release it and it explodes. You do wonder like w- with this explosion, uh, <laughs> what was the plan you know, it's not like it's a huge hit or anything. They're not going terribly fast. Like, did they have a delicate way of setting this down? And when Beckett's saying, like, no, don't let go of it. Like, they were already at the point where they couldn't have pulled up. It was their life for this. So I don't really get like, why Beckett punches him later on, or I guess it's just him taking it out on Val dying. Uh, the first mention of Crimson Dawn comes up here, uh, which is, we're just thinking, another crime family. You can't outrun them. So Beckett's basically saying the only thing we can do is we can go and we can beg for another chance with this guy Dryden Voss, uh, and Han says, "Okay, you know, I'll do this." Uh, he says, "If you do this, you're never going to get out of this life. You're going to be in this, in, indebted to them for life." Uh, they eventually make up. I love that Woody Harrelson says, "Yeah, I'm sorry, I punched you in the face." He goes, "Happens more often than you think." Which <laughs> another thing you just I love about the Han Solo character that just he's one of these guys who you know drives everybody up the wall. Um, the ship's there right away. So the idea that they even could have ran is kind of stupid because, like, this ship lands seconds after their conversation happens. Uh, but I also like just the design of this ship that it's this it, – it almost is like a skyscraper that flies. Mm. Uh, and when they get inside, this is – I don't know if this is what you're talking about that feels very Star Wars-like. You right. know, they tried it in The Force – well, in The Force Awakens, they tried it with, like, Maz's palace, like, the um, – the the cantina scene let's do all these wild aliens you know in one spot they tried it again in last jedi with a casino i don't think either of them really had much of an impact and this kind of party room in dryden's ship is fantastic because the design of the aliens feels very star wars like we get a lot of you know puppets and animatronic stuff here we get all these crazy looking aliens we get the duet, which, you know, if it if it had been added in a special edition by George Lucas, everybody would hate it. <laughs> but because we have a singing duet and it's jazz here, it's somehow classier. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. I'm, I don't really get 
a lot of the hate around the Jedi rock scene in Return of the Jedi, even though I do feel it's slightly out of place, I think it's the fact that it's played for fun and for laughs and what's kind of a dark sequence of Return of the Jedi. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But this is pulled off more effectively. It's the exact same idea. George Lucas wanted you to see things that are like the real world. You would have, you know, banned entertainment there. But just be in a Star Wars way. It was like you would never expect to see stormtroopers riding on dewbacks. <laughs> That's why he put that in there. You would never expect to see an alien singing with another alien in duet. And here seeing this woman singing with an alien, it would be totally normal in the Star Wars universe. It's actually pulled off more effectively here. But all these um, aliens we see in this, this party scene are great. Uh, Beckett basically tells Han, don't look at anything. Don't touch anything. You know, just try to just be ignored. Uh, he goes to see Dryden. Dryden, uh, Paul Bettany. This is, I think, probably the best addition Ron Howard brought on. Uh, this was a recast character. Um, the guy that was hired for this, and we don't really have any of the footage from the Lord and Miller cut uh, that – I don't even know what the guy's uh, – I don't know. Can you find the actor's name here who was originally supposed to play this character? Or are you not even aware of this? Uh, I'm not aware. Actually, it was right in front of me, though. Michael K. Williams had originally been cast, whoever that is. So that was that's the main thing that got reshot from this movie. Um, it's from The Wire. Was... If you've ever seen The Wire, he's best known for oh. Omar Little in The Wire. So I mean, he's been a lot of things I've seen here, yet he's not somebody that I like, instantly recognize, but... I've heard that he was just supposed to be playing this role. I've heard that he was playing kind of slightly humanoidish character that he was going to be like under makeup or stuff. Um, I'm sure it would have been fine either way. He's but... in third watch. Sorry. <laughs> oh, we should interview him. He played cop number one in Superheroes <laughs> Part 2. Oh, what a role that was. But this was like Ron Howard's big addition, whether it was just through some of this being the footage that didn't work um, or some of the stuff they hadn't shot yet, but this Michael K. Williams was cast in the mob boss role and he wasn't available when they had to do the reshoots that Ron Howard was doing. So they had so much of this to reshoot and he wouldn't be available for months and they knew they couldn't delay the movie. So they just recast the role. Ron Howard obviously had worked with Paul Bettany in a beautiful mind. So, you know, he, he kind of had the ace in the hole, but I'm like a massive Paul Bettany fan. Mm -hmm. uh and we're seeing paul bettany do what paul bettany does best like have you seen the movie a knight's tale oh god like when i was yeah a long time ago that's all honestly one of my all-time favorite movies it's it, one of the things that since we did our 50 favorite movie episode i look back on i'm like oh i can't believe i didn't include a knight's tale on it because i absolutely love that movie and paul bettany was kind of you know that was his first big role and he was playing just this fast talking incredibly charismatic guy and, you know, then he sort of settled into these roles like A Beautiful Mind and Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, which is my favorite performance he did, where he was playing this really intelligent, like, you know, um, almost qu slightly quieter, intelligent guy. But, like, he sort of originally started as this fast-talking, you know, British loudmouth. <laughs> and I love that we're getting this combination. Like, this is like the hybrid Paul Bettany here. I, I often, even though I'm a huge Paul Bettany fan, I often forget he's in this movie. And it was only when I started rewatching this again, I'm like, oh yeah, Paul Bettany plays the mob boss. And yet I think this on my third viewing was the one where I appreciated him the most because they build him up like he's this, you know, the most dangerous guy in the galaxy. Like this is the godfather. And then when you meet him, 
he's killing a man, which I, I don't know if this was meant to be kind of a setup for the Darth Maul thing later on, but he's got this little hand blade thing that has like the, the red, you know, laser thing on it and it's double-sided, but it's like this mini double-sided knife. I don't know if that was meant to be like a foreshadowing with the Darth Maul thing, but you get that. And then all of a sudden after all this stuff, like he's going to kill me, he's like, Beckett, Beckett, I'm so sorry to hear about Val. Is there anything I could do? Like he's the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> And then you'll just get this moment where he just cuts somebody off like, I'm going to kill you right now. Like he's this bipolar character. I just love what Paul Bettany does in this movie. Um, and I feel like there's a fear of this guy, even though Paul Bettany's in no way an intimidating guy. Like you just get the fear of him. And yet at the same time, like this is like a great Star Wars villain. And I wish that he had a bigger role or we would have the opportunity to see him again because he just he makes this whole section of the movie. You know, Han has this stuff with Kira here. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, you get Woody Harrelson and Han trying to con their way out of that. That's great. I'm like, Paul Bettany steals all this sequence for me. Uh, but when Han meets Kira, you get that she's on the job and he says, yeah, I can't believe you managed to get out. She says, why? Well, I, I actually didn't get out. And you see this little mark on her wrist, which is the Crimson Dawn thing. Um, she's kind of trying to play down her relationship to Han for some reason. Uh, eventually when they have the meeting here. Han comes in with Beckett and you know, they're talking about, well, how are you going to make this right? And he's like, uh, we'll get you what you paid for. Well, and it's like, how are you going to find, you know, refined hyperfuel? And they're saying all these places, they mentioned Scarif here, which this is the planet we were trying to remember that the, the climax of rogue one takes place on, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, that gets a mention here. So we get ties to rogue one before it'll happen. And then Han just throws out, what about unrefined fuel? And I love that the way Alden Ranreich plays this is like he's making it up off the top of his head. Because this could have, if you read the script for this, if you just read this dry, it seems like Han has this plan. But it's like, oh, where are you going to find this? Kessel. Yeah, Kess Kessel. That's the one I was thinking of. Like, <laughs> he plays this the way Han Solo be. Like, I, I, I don't like a, a Han Solo or not a Han Solo, a Indiana Jones thing. I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Um, uh, they mentioned like the Pikes controlling Kessel, uh, which is again, I'm guessing just another crime family. Like the way that the, the, you can do the huts are gangsters. Like the, a lot of this is starting to get more fleshed out. The, the more we get into the star Wars movies of this whole underworld thing that even though the empire has the rule, this is who the battle's actually against. So eventually it's like, okay, so let's say this plan of yours works. What do you need? He's like, well, we need a really fast ship. And Kira's like, I know a guy for that. And it's like, great, Kira, you get to go with them. Uh, which to me feels like, I guess that he's trying to protect his investment here, but it almost, this is where I think the Kira character doesn't work aside from Amelia Clark, maybe being miscast in this type of role. Uh, it's just sort of like, all right, well, how are we going to get her to go along for the ride? Well, I need an insurance policy. It's, it doesn't make total sense to me. Uh, but, but still, I mean, I, I feel like this whole section, the train thing aside, which again is fun. I love this whole world. The, the, the mafia dryden voss underworld and again paul bettany just what he brings here uh and the setup obviously is going to be about you know introducing the falcon after this but you mentioned like only a couple of big set pieces in this movie this is primarily long dialogue scenes here and yet i don't find it boring to just have these great actors like alden ehrenreich and woody harrelson and amelia clark and paul bettany especially you know just having these incredibly long drawn out dialogue scenes here it's more dialogue than we get in any Star Wars movie. George Lucas kind of pride himself on, even in the original trilogy, I want fast scenes, I want lots of cliffhangers, 
So even in the original trilogy, we don't get these long dialogue scenes. This is already a completely different movie, and yet I think it really works better the more I watch this in these sections that originally when I did see it, I thought this is kind of like the slower section of the movie. I don't know if I need all this. I'd agree with that. I think it's, um, I mean, I'm very much on team Paul Bettany. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the movie Wimbledon. That's probably not a popular opinion, Mm. but, um, I like him in that and I like it. (laughs) I like it in the, um, go ahead. (laughs) I I was just going to say, I, I don't, care for them i remember being really excited about the movie wimbledon coming out because paul bettany was gonna be the star of it and that's one of those weird things where i walked out of the movie thinking like well that movie kind of sucked but man paul (laughs) bettany should be a leading man i really wish he would be given more chances to be the leading man because he really made it work in that movie was it just the curse and dunce factor that the mj you were tired of no um i do like curse and dunce i feel like i people think i don't like her but i do Uh, where is she what happened to her (laughs) who is she (laughs) Where did she, she go? Show, oh, she did the TV show Fargo. She was in Hidden Figures. She's popping up in lots of things, and nobody recognizes it as her. <laughs> kind of like Tobey Maguire, obviously. Like <laughs> Tobey Maguire's in everything. You just don't realize who he is anymore. Um, yeah, I um, lost my train of thought there. What was I saying about Paul Bettany? Oh, yeah, in the um, it was either the Everything Wrong with or the Honest Trailer. They basically point out that because now he's been in um, Marvel and Star Wars, that Disney literally owns thirty yeah. percent of um, Paul Bettany. So, uh, but I did watch uh, those YouTube series. I think it's Variety do those series where they sit down with an actor to talk through like their various film roles over the years, and he talks about um, how this was like the absolute dream. Like you know, any opportunity it came up to be in Star Wars, like he took it. Because, you know, now he can say he's officially a, in the Star Wars canon. And I love hearing actors talk like that. Like, I saw one with Laura Dern, who basically, you know, like, everyone groans about being in The Last Jedi. But I think kind of just seeing her enthusiasm when she uh, is in that video. Like, she was saying, like, on the first day of the set when C-3PO's in front of her, she just started crying. She's like, I can't believe it. I'm yeah. Star Wars. So, like, I love hearing actors when they do things like that. But, um, yeah, like... Tandy, does Tandy Newton ever age? Can we just point this out? Like, she no. looks incredible. Huh. Like, the woman is just beautiful and incredible. And, like, I don't know how old she is now, but she still looks the same as when I used to watch her in ER. So, good for you, Tandy Newton. Um, be my friend. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of the afro? I don't, I don't want to curse us with another mullet moment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We're about to have some editing problems. Um, <laughs> oh, I think it's, it's fine. Like, it's, you know, I mean, Tandy Newton it's is just... It's that classic look. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is with Tandy Newton, she's just such a beautiful person that I think her character here, you're not meant to look at her that way, if that makes sense. Like, it's kind of, she's, I don't know how to explain it. Like, she's just, she's a tough nut character who does great things and is useful. And it's kind of like, by making her just, she just looks like a regular person, if that makes sense. She but, doesn't look like an object of an affection, but still looks good as a regular yeah. person. But but I mean I mean more just the fact that they gave her the afro. This is like that car at the beginning, or the speeder at the beginning. I said looked like a late sixties, early seventies car, mm-hmm. and you know the mullet. I was the defender of the mullet in episode <laughs> two because it, it. How else are you gonna you know explain the fact that the original trilogy, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, they had very seventies looking hair. Mm. So seeing her in an afro, it's like it's like it's placing it in the same world that okay that explains the seventies hair in the the original New Hope. I do like in this campfire scene when Woody Harrelson Beckett gives him the um, the gun and he like kisses it. 
mm. kind of as he gives it to Han Solo because you know we we need to find out how he gets his blaster, I guess. Um, <laughs> just just little, you know. There's so many of those little moments where it's kind of like we need to like, oh, we have to retcon the fact that uh, Lando calls uh, Han Han like Han or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh, we have to, you know, <laughs> little things like that. Um, but I, yeah, the campfire says, I like the sort of the, um, you know, oh, you're after a lady. Tell him, what does he say? Like, oh, is she nice? Is she pretty? Does she have sharp teeth? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is John Favreau. Like, I don't think I realized yeah. it was John Favreau till afterwards. Um, so, you know, and the guy can fuck it- up Disney with uh, Lion King, but he can do a good voice. <laughs> But but look what they gave him after. I mean, they loved his voice so much. They said, let's give you the first ever Star Wars live action TV series. Here's the Mandalorian. He can't, you know, he he really actually gives, the performance reminds me a lot of Bradley Cooper in Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, it's got Mm. a real rocket sort of vibe to it. But um, I I really like the Rio character. Like, I I like Rio and I, I like Tandy Newton. And it's kind of, I just, I'm just sad that we don't kind of get more of them. Like, I mean, you know, I love Woody Harrelson, don't get me wrong. But, like, you know, you could have killed Woody Harrelson off early and then kind of had this as just Tandy Newton plugging along with everything. Honestly, I'm surprised they didn't do that because kind of, you know, that's what they do now. It's sort of, you know, let's have more prominent roles for female characters. So, um, but, you know, it's still kind of, I guess, like, I, I, I get what you mean in terms of, like, you know, let's shockingly kill someone off. It's kind of, you know, the Game of Thrones mm-hmm. thing and that sort of stuff. But, yeah, I like this train sequence. Like, I like kind of the, the fight and everything. I love it when we get these stormtroopers style things in their, like, furry boots coming out with the magnetic uh, shoes on the side of the train. Looks awesome. And this all looks visually fantastic as well. Like, it just it looks really, really good. Um, I don't understand, though, like, Tanny Newton's character, does she really have to kill herself? Like, I get it. Like, no. she's, uh, oh, you know, I'm not going to get away from this. Like, at least risk it. Like, risk it to get the biscuit. Like, just get yourself shot. Then, okay, I've been shot. There's no way I can get away. Then now I'm going to blow it up. Like, it just kind of, it seems pointless that she does kill herself. But, hey, sacrifice, because why not? Um, And, yeah, I like these sort of marauder type of characters. And I like the fact that this is, you know, the setup for the rebellion. I think it's kind of, it, it's clever. Mm-hmm. So, I, I like that. Um, and the the girl who plays uh, what, what's the character called again? Emphis Nest. Emphis Nest. Like, is she? She's off something, isn't she? No, she really hadn't done anything prior to this. Um, I I had to Google it again because I remember when, as I was watching this, I'm like, oh yeah, doesn't the girl who plays Emphis Nest do something? But it was after this. They have like this uh, mini series now on Les Misérables. Uh, mm. Like, not a musical version, but she's one of the main characters on that. She's actually really good. Like, I, but yet, I, yeah. there's something about her here where she looks like she's nine years old, even though she's in her 20s. She she does look familiar, though. She's just maybe just got one of those sort of faces and that. Um, you mentioned, I think, before about how sort of the, the age of, of Han Solo and kind of, you know, they don't maybe pull off this sort of younger sort of teenage vibe. Like, I think it's a good comparison, though, you say to Casino Royale, because... You know, if he's like a, a teenage boy, kind of when he's hanging out with Amelia Clark and stuff like that, like, like whenever you're a teenager, like not just boys, girls as well, like your first kind of love, you're infatuated with them, aren't you? So like, you know, you will do anything for them. And, you know, you think that that's the one person you're going to be with forever and all that sort of stuff. So mm. it does make sense that he's even after three years, he's still chasing after her and everything and wants to find her. So I think kind of maybe they could have established his age a little bit better. But I also, one thing that I kind of came after watching this is I don't think I ever established that there was much of an age gap between Han Solo and Princess Leia. Um, mm-hmm. But 
But how much how much older is Han Solo? Because like you know, Leia's only going to be about ten years old while this is happening, right? So who is yeah. Ben Waterworth? Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I think the the closest they got to confirming his age is they said that Solo would you know basically be Han Solo around the age of nineteen to twenty two or something like that. So let's say he's on the older side here, twenty two. Uh, let's say Princess Leia is 10. So, yeah, I mean, he's he's a good 12, 13 years older than her, mm. which really matches up with, like, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher's ages, I guess, at the time they did Star Wars. I guess they just both look so good in those original trilogies. You don't think they're, like, there's an age gap between them, really, do you? Mm. So, at least I've never thought about that. Um... So yeah, the I love how kind of they're talking about like this fuel is so explosive, and then it like it, I mean it does a pretty decent explosion when it blows up the mountain, but it's you know not the biggest explosion in the world. Um, yeah, I, I like the I agree with you. I love the fact that like this yacht is kind of this giant tall skyscraper. It's it's really cool. Um, and like look, I, I joke about the jazz, <laughs> but I, I'm with you. Like I like the fact that they kind of set this up and. You know, it makes sense. And I, I also like the fact they're kind of in this galaxy where we've got, like, all these crime lords ruling things and that. Like, it, I like that about um, Return of the Jedi, how you've sort of got, you know, Jabba the Hutt sort of working outside of the Empire and kind of you've still got these things. So it's not just all purely the Rebellion versus the Empire. You've actually got other people as well. So I like that. Um, I love these glasses. I remember saying to Mallory when I was watching this, like, in the, the scene, like, where they're drinking, like, these cool, like, wine glasses they've got. I don't know. They just look really, really cool. Mm. And Paul Bettany's character, why does he have, like, a bear claw mark on his face? Is that, like, meant to be explained in, like, a, a novel or something like that? Like, do you know why that is a thing? Uh, but it's, it's, it's a cool look. No. Yeah. Well, I think what does work about it, because I just looked a little bit more, and when Michael K. Williams was supposed to be playing this character, it was going to be a full motion capture character. Uh, and then when they had to do the reshoots, obviously they were already late in production and there wouldn't have been time to do something like that. So they're like, okay, let's just film it, you know, so we can do it with minimal visual effects. Let's just have Paul Bettany. I would think more than anything, it was just a decision to make him look slightly different, you know, because they wanted this character to have some type of memorable quality about it. I do like when Han's walking through the the bar and kind of like not looking at people and you kind of see like there's a couple of Empire officers like in this um, room and one this like really old looking guy who's like talking up some young girl. Um, I love it when like he sends Chewie to the bar and when Chewie comes back with the two drinks and he's like... Drinking himself. And he's... <laughs> and he just like drinking both himself. I I will say it is kind of just very random and convenient, isn't it? That oh, there's Amelia Clark just happens to be in this place. Yeah, like, three years later, like hello, convenience. Um, but you know, I guess we have to move the plot forward somehow. But yeah, I I love Paul Bettany. I think he just does that. The way he does the villain is fantastic. Like I know it's not in this scene, and it's later on uh, when they bring back the fuel. But when he's kind of like you know, no, I won't. I don't ask twice. Like it's just kind of the oh, way yeah. he delivers a line, and it's kind of like holy fuck, like. I'm not going to piss this guy off. Um, and Paul Paul Bettany doesn't age either. Can I say that guy's still yeah. good looking? Like, look at him. Like, and neither does Woody Harrelson. No one ages in this movie. Even Chewbacca looks fantastic. <laughs> he looks younger somehow. I know. Like, <laughs> is it motion capture? Like, I don't understand. Um, you know what's funny about Paul Bettany? Like, if I don't know if you're the same way, but I look at him and I'm like, like, man, that is not an attractive man. 
And yet women absolutely adore Paul Bettany, which I think is just the personality. Because even Jamie, she wasn't watching this with me, but I don't even remember what we were watching. It might have been A Knight's Tale or something like that. He appears naked in A Knight's Tale. And again, let me just say this. Paul Bettany does not have you know the most attractive body. He looks very straight, very – not straight as in hetero, but just you know pale <laughs> and – very little definition. <laughs> he looks, you know, gay people, they got nice bodies, but he looks so straight. <laughs> the straight bodies, ugh, look at it. He's so but, straight. Um, He's only got a four pack. But, like, in that movie, you know, you got Heath Ledger in there, and Jamie's a fan of Heath Ledger, too. But I remember one time being like, Paul Bettany, yeah, this guy's hot. And, like, Paul Bettany, it's like, yeah, yeah, he's just, he, he seems so fun. Like, and that's the thing with Paul Bettany. Like, I don't know if I can think of any other actor working today no matter what the age is that is i I would say is as charismatic as paul bettany like paul bettany could sit there people say this all the time but he could read the phone book and you'd be glued to him you're like this is incredible like tell me next tell me about the smiths now okay now the smites like he's he just has something about him like more personality and yet he's not a big personality he just he has like one tone straight through and you just everything about him is amazing do you think he could have been a good james bond that's funny because I, I think he does not have the look of James Bond, but like acting ability, he could do it all. I, I could totally see him as James Bond if he changed his look somehow. I, I like sort of in this scene too when Han says like, you know, oh, what about unrefined? And kind of just that look that Paul Bettany gives him. And then yeah. kind of like he sort of he looks up and then even the way Woody Harrison kind of like leans in and what does he do? Like shove Han as if they're like, just shut up. Um, yeah, subtle little moments like that that I always really, really like. Um, but yeah, no, Paul Bettany, what a man. Him or Jimmy Smits? Who who would you rather yeah. take out to dinner? Oh, that's so tough. Uh, my mom would kill me if I didn't pick Jimmy Smits, but uh, <laughs> uh, no disrespect, but she's dead now. So I'm picking Paul Bettany. <laughs> I love Paul Bettany. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh so hard at that, but like... <laughs> Not funny, but just the I'm way sure you my say mom it. would have loved Paul Bettany too. <laughs> I just, I just, I just picture this like you come home from work, you've had a hard day, you hear these noises coming from the bedroom, like what's going on? You walk in, you catch Jamie in a threesome with Paul Bettany and Jimmy Smith, and like, what side yeah. of the bed are you getting on? And you're like, Jamie, <laughs> get out. <laughs> um, yeah, anyways, I guess we're done that section, right? Yes, we have. Yes, okay, now we have. Very good and very bad to talk about because this is where we get introduced to Lando. Uh, this is another example where I feel like the cinematography kind of ruins this because we're in another, I guess, seedy club here, some underground club. You got droid cage fighting. You got card games going on. And there's a lot of these quirky little aliens and droids and just it doesn't look it doesn't like pop on the screen the way it should um, but still, I like the environment to this. We, we get introduced to Lando through Kira. This is that Star Wars thing I was saying, which bring on a guy like Lawrence Kasdan, Kasdan gets. The way that Lando was set up here is her going on and on. You know, he's attractive. He's sophisticated. You know, he's he's got impeccable taste. He's elegant. And he's like, all right, all right, shut up about this already, right? Uh, so you get this big, long introduction before he's ever introduced and he's playing cards. And we get Donald Glover here, which... This was the casting that everybody was on board with. Whereas Alden Ehrenreich, people were like, well, I don't know if I can accept it. Billy D. Williams, as great as he is, people were okay with replacing. And Donald Glover just seems to be one of these guys where everybody loves him. Um, and I even heard so many, I can't even tell you how many people I heard say, 
oh, yeah, that guy doesn't look anything like Harrison Ford. But Donald Glover, like, that's perfect casting. Really look at him and Billy Dillian side by side. They look nothing alike. Woody Harrelson resembles Han Solo more than Donald Glover resembles Billy D. Williams. But what he does bring here is the same thing Alden Ehrenreich has, which is he gets all the mannerisms. And I know in a review episode, because I was watching for it again this time, I complained that my biggest complaint with Donald Glover is that he Lando is like one of these guys where he's so phony in like a cheerful way. Like he's grinning ear to ear every scene he's in. He's always like, ha, 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 how's it going? In this cheesy way. I remember a friend of mine describing him years ago when I was saying I loved Lando. He goes, oh, Lando's so cheesy. You don't really get the cheese factor out of Donald Glover. And that bothered me originally that you know he, he doesn't have that Lando smarminess. He just has kind of the cockiness about him. But it fits in the same way that like Han Solo doing immature clicking with the detonator. It's the same Han Solo we would get later on. It's just young and dung Han Solo. So I'm not as annoyed with his lack of smiling in this movie as maybe overly serious, cocky Lando instead of the cheesy, you know, smooth Lando. Uh, but he really does get the mannerisms, the way he kind of, you know, twirls his chips in his hand. And the, there's a thing um, I'm, I will point out about Alden Ehrenreich before I forget because there's no one point in the movie where I notice this. But two things Alden Ehrenreich does well that Harrison Ford does, the way he stands – Han Solo would stand in a way with like his hands on his hips that Alden Ehrenreich gets the posture perfect. And another thing is everybody will remember the way he does in Empire Strikes Back, the way when he's arguing with Princess Leia and he's saying, you know, you want me to stay because of the way you feel about me. She goes, you're a great help to us. You're a natural leader. And he goes, no, that's not it. He kind of like leans in towards her, pointing his finger right in her face. And Alden Ehrenreich does that same thing multiple times in this movie. He'll be like right in Lando's face or something like that. No, you listen to me. And the way that this is so subtle, but watch it and you'll get it. The way that Donald Glover kind of sits sideways and like this, this, like he's got the, the captain's posture on, you know, one arm up, the other one down. And he has like this slanted way he sits is so B- Billy D. Williams that like you can't help but love the way they brought this to the character. And it's funny that the, these two guys get the most praise for their performances. And really what they're doing is just bringing the small mannerisms. It's not the way they talk. It's not the way they look. It's just the mannerisms they bring from the characters. Um, but we get the card game here. So this is where everybody thought Han would win the Falcon. Cause it, that was what was known about it. The, the, this Sabak game. Uh, I love that Han mispronounces Sabak and he, or Sabak or something like that. And he says Sabak, which I didn't even realize till I watched it this time when he calls him Han and Han corrects him and says Han. It's actually kind of in the context of their playfulness here where Han's mispronouncing the card game and Lando's like, no, it's a Bach. And then he's mispronouncing his name, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And he's like, no, it's, it's Han. Uh, but it is one of those things, like you said, like Billy D. Williams maybe just mispronounced the character's name. And because Billy D. Williams was one of the bigger stars involved in the movies. Nobody's like, we don't want to correct uh, Billy D here, but he's calling him Han. It's like, don't say anything. We don't want to walk off the movie. He's star power. He's money. <laughs> um, and they bring that back here, which is great. The way that Han just sort of, you know, plays like he's never played this before. It's like, so you're familiar with the game? Yeah, I played a couple times. Yeah. And then he just gets ahead. Uh, Lando has the hidden card here. I love right before uh, they, they get to the end of the game here. And um, 
uh, Han saying to him, you know, you should have quit while you were, or Lando says to Han, you should quit while you're ahead. And he says, you should quit while you're behind. He ends up beating him in a game. Han realizes he cheats. Uh, so he goes off. We have a Casino Royale moment here where he loses the card game. And then the girl comes in to save the day. Uh, of course, the whole time, Kira knows Lando. So I like not really it being clearly stated that um, uh, Kira lets him go along with this, risking the ship and everything, because she knows she can just talk to Lando and say, hey, let's just forgive all debts. Can you do us this favor? And he'll do it. Uh, so when Han's like, I'll win this card game, it's like this overly cocky thing. She's like, I'll have some fun with this. Now, unfortunately, through all that good, we get introduced to the worst thing in this movie, which uh. I would love to see what people's opinions are on this now that we're a year and a half removed. Because at the time, everybody's like, oh, this droid L3 is so funny. It's so good. We have this feminist robot who's, you know, <laughs> talking about droid rights. And it's just, it's one of these things where they're trying to bring in modern philosophies to Star Wars in a way that, like, it is so painfully 2018 that you're making these statements like, no, droid rights now. And uh, her being the sexually liberated droid, which it's like, they're doing this to kind of make it feel like 2018 to, to fill in for a lot of the stuff that's going around in the world. But like 20 years from now, people are going to be looking back on this and it's not going to age well. Cause it'd be like, why did they, they included that in there just to make some statements. But my issue with this more than anything is just the comedy is dumb. Like mm-hmm. L three is loud and obnoxious and dominates the screen time. And I, I was a bit of a defender of Jar Jar saying, I don't see the problem with Jar Jar. Jar Jar's okay. But I acknowledge that, the misstep in Jar Jar was too much in short periods. When Jar Jar was in the movie, it was like three or four scenes in a row where he was just dominating, even if it wasn't about him. It was just too much Jar Jar. It was almost crammed down your throat all in these small sections of the movie. They do the same thing with L3 here. You know, she's got these scenes here where she's like, no, free the droids, free the droids. And then it's just too much talking with her. And then when they're on the ship, it's too much with her. And then she's just sort of gone. Like from the introduction into when L3 is written out or kills off from the movie it's just she has more dialogue than anybody else and it's just it's all at an 11 i want l3 to have a few surprising lines the way that the the droid that alan tudyk played in um rogue one uh what was the name uh k2 yeah Yeah. uh the way that k2 was done where they gave him this quirk um that was slightly different from regular droids you know he was programmed differently but yet it wasn't on a 10 at all times. They had him sometimes at a three and then a four. And then you get those moments where it was funny because you'd get that one moment of him at a 10 L three is on a 10 at all times. L three is Jar Jar. It is not K two. And that's everything wrong with this character. And I, I, I would love to just not talk about this character ever again, but there are so many lines here. They're just like nauseating that we'll have to point out. Um, so Kira negotiates to, have them take the ship. So Lando's like, yeah, sure, you know, uh, but you're going to have to do me a favor. Beckett gets introduced here where Lando's suddenly like, you know, you're Beckett. You're the one who killed Aura Singh, which, again, we might talk about Aura Singh a couple of times in the prequels that she was this background character introduced to the Phantom Menace that was supposed to have a major role, but George Lucas shied away so they wouldn't have another Boba Fett, you know, revolt on their hands when she was killed off. Uh, they bring her back into the movie here, mentioning this this character that's, just, you know, kind of in the expanded universe of the prequels. Uh, he says, you're the one killed Aura Singles. I pushed her. The fall is what killed her, which is great. <laughs> Clint Howard's cameo. I'm sure you noticed that. Yes, yes. We talked yeah. about him in, um, what was that? Uh, San- no, Santa with Muscles that we talked about him last year, didn't we? Yeah. No, I love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's great. 
Yeah, I mean, he has a cameo in all Ron Howard's movies, and it's it's not like, oh, can you spot Clint Howard? Now, Ron Howard's like, you're going to notice Clint in all of my movies. Are they related? Uh, oh, are they related? Did you not know? No, I don't. <laughs> like, that's you a legitimate question. Don't know? Is, this a, is this a dumb thing, the dumb Ben yeah. moment? Yeah, they're brothers. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were both child actors, and Ron Howard obviously became the bigger star, and Clint Howard kind of emerges this guy in all of Ron Howard's movies. You know, sometimes he would give him a major role, like in Apollo 13 or in The Grinch, but most of the time it's like, let me give him this cameo in my movies. Um, but Is funny he in thing Rush? about. I, I'm, I don't know. I, I think there is one Ron. I don't know if it's Rush, but there is one Ron Howard movie where there was no cameo. And I remember Ron Howard saying it just didn't feel right to put him in there. Maybe it was a beautiful mind or Rush or The Missing or something like that. But What are they saying? Yeah, he doesn't have a beautiful mind. He's got an ugly mind. So that's why he's not in a beautiful mind. Well, fuck you, Ron Howard. Oh. He's a beautiful man. He's also an MTV Movie Award Lifetime Achievement winner along with somebody else in this movie. Do you know who? Woody Harrelson? <laughs> no. Well, the MTV Movie Awards, they did this thing where they would give their Lifetime Achievement Award to, like, some cult figure or some unsung hero. And, like, one year they gave it to Jackie Chan. And this is before Jackie Chan had his North American breakthrough. It was like, we're going to give the Lifetime Achievement Award to a guy who nobody's heard of. And they gave it to Clint Howard because, like, oh, he's an icon. We're not going to give it to the big stars. One year they gave it to Chewbacca, which was great. <laughs> so... Lynn Howard and Chewbacca are both MTV Movie Award Lifetime Achievement winners. So great that they quick, ha- get to see here. I just going to say, I quickly looked at his IMDb. Apparently, he wasn't in Rush, so maybe that was the one you were talking about where he didn't have a cameo. Um, I mean, it is, it's at the point now where he's so famous for doing the cameos in these movies where it would be distracting. So I, I would feel sorry for Ron Howard trying to fit him into some of these more serious movies. Uh, like, I, I, if he is in a beautiful mind, I'd love to spot the scene and see if it stands out. Um Anyway, so you realize that the reason Lando's able to go along with this is his ship's been impounded. Because I kind of wonder, what is Lando doing on this planet? Like, if he's this, you know, renowned smuggler and gambler, and he's in the seediest club in some junkyard somewhere, what's he doing there? But it's because his ship was impounded, and he's just trying to find a way to buy his way out of this. Uh, So they basically steal his ship. Uh, I love that they get the same setup that we get in all the Star Wars movies before the Falcons introduce. You know, uh, what a piece of junk in A New Hope. Um, you know, uh, oh, uh, you know, the junk will do fine, and then they pan to the Falcon and the Force Awakens. And here it's like the opposite. It's like, oh, I bet you it's a piece of junk. And then they, they cut to the Falcon, and it looks pristine. Like, the fact that they made this look brand new, even have a slightly different design, which is going to come up later on when something changes about this. And Han just looks on it like it's the most glorious thing ever. It's like a great reversal of every other way the Falcon's introduced. Um, so... Emphis Nest is in the background watching them again, which my complaint about the Emphis Nest design is I think putting this girl behind the mask, the, the, the costume doesn't look distinctive enough that it was only on second or third viewing I realized this is supposed to be the same character that you know was in earlier on is going to appear later on. Uh, the first shot in the cockpit, though, like this is one of those moments where even though we had seen it in The Force Awakens when you know Han gets back in the cockpit or Luke had that moment in Last Jedi – there's something about seeing the Falcon cockpit that's always so great. Mm-hmm. And Han coming in here for the first time, like this is one, even though there's a lot of moments in this movie where it's like, oh, this is like fan fiction, the way that they just, this is the moment Han, you know, uh, gets his name. This is the moment Han meets Chewie. This is one of these moments like it needed to be paused on. It's spectacular. Um, this is one of those lines where uh, L3 says something like, you're going to have to do that thing again later. And you start to get like the weird sexual relationship here terrible 
Um, the first shot of hyperspace. Now, I didn't mention this in the prequels, um, but uh, I, we, I probably mentioned we did the uh, Clone Wars animated one a couple of years ago. But um, George Lucas intentionally didn't want to show the ships going through hyperspace, like that great effect of what hyperspace looks like from the cockpit. Because when he was making the prequels, he's like, I want to save some things that will still look special when you get to episode four, five, and six. So when you watch these straight through, it doesn't steal some of those effects away. And it's kind of cool to think about the fact that we don't get that in episode one, two, and three. So our first real shot of going through hyperspace is this incredible moment where they're sort of panning through the cockpit of what it looks like to go through hyperspace, which looks incredible, you know, even now. Interesting thing I found out, though, is that obviously, I don't know if it was done for the hyperspace effect shots, but they wanted this to have a look similar to um, the original trilogy and what people knew of the Millennium Falcon and what it looked like. So whether it was Lord or Miller or Ron Howard, they used rear screen projection in the cockpit here. So it's not just, you know, oh, we'll fill in the effects later. There are some shots where they're actually using old school movie tech of rear screen projection of Starfields. So it kind of has that tie to the originals. Um some fun things in here again, too, like Chewie playing the hologram chess game for the first <laughs> time and almost ripping Beckett's arms off as they complain about the game. Uh, not so good things. Did we need Kira going through Lando's closets and then comments on, you know, he has a lot of capes, maybe too many capes, and she's trying on his clothes. I don't know if I needed that. Um, uh, okay, so we're going to kind of breeze through the last section here so we can just get rid of K, not K2, uh, L3 <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, there's a scene with Beckett here who's talking about not trusting Kira, uh, which is going to be important later on. When they enter this world where Kessel is, we get the, 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 the maelstrom, and as they refer to it later, the Maw, which is another tie to the Star Wars novels that, uh, the first novels that were ever written post-Return of the Jedi, which was the Heir to the Empire trilogy, uh, which is still the most popular novels they've ever written. It involved this hidden death star weapon in this thing called the maw cluster which was exactly what we're seeing here so this is actually writing in something from the original movies uh but um they eventually land on castle after a quick scene of lando's freaky sex life which we didn't need han and chewie are in chains they're selling them here so uh kira is playing the slave owner who's dropping these guys off beckett i love if you caught this the the costume he's wearing you you get where that came from it's the Return of the Jedi Lando helmet, isn't it? Yeah. He's wearing Lando's disguise in Return of the Jedi, so I love that this has just been on the ship for, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, so on Kessel in these mines, which is all just slaves working in the mines, the security desk has these monitors, which are like old 70s-looking monitors. I love that it even looks almost monochrome and and bad reception, the way that monitors looked even in the original Star Wars trilogy, like when we had Han in Return of the Jedi on that monitor um, uh, when he's posing as the Imperial officer. They have these 70s-looking monitors there. Uh, we actually get Chewie as the revolt happens here, pulling people's arms out of their sockets. <laughs> uh, there's uh, Everybody kind of gets their fight here. Uh, I think this is the moment where Kira starts fighting for the first time, and L3 mentions, like, ooh, that's an impressive skill you have, and she says it's Terrace Kasi which was a Star Wars video game. I don't know if you ever played it. it. It was actually at the time considered like the worst Star Wars game ever. It was essentially Mortal Kombat for Star Wars. It's just 
you're in a ring, you're fighting, your Star Wars characters fighting each other, but it was called Masters of Terrace Kossi, and it was supposed to be about, like, this ancient fighting technique, and Kira actually mentions that here. Um, L3 starts a revolt among the droids by taking off their restraining bolts. Why this works, I don't know, because in A New Hope, we learn that restraining bolts literally are just something that keeps you in a direct vicinity. It doesn't change your inhibitions as an artificial intelligence being, where all of them are suddenly, like, you know, walking on tables. We get, like, the gonk droid just found a gonk, 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 and we get other droids who are, like, just dancing around as if they suddenly, you know, were freed from their own minds and restraints. It's just the dumbest thing ever. Although the setup is just that we have a revolt going on in the mines that Chewie is leading now because he found another Wookiee and freed all these people. And we get a revolt going on with the droids. It actually does help the plot because if I have one complaint about the story of this movie, I like the whole idea of the heist movie. But just like how Kira just sort of shows up, everything here is just sort of a little too easy. Like, how would this have worked if L3 didn't start this revolt? Like, mm. they have all the security. They're just going to sneak this thing out of there. Because even when they get up to the surface later on during the the whole battle, it's not like they weren't met with resistance. They were with resistance even with hundreds of droids and other, you know, slave creatures around fighting back too. It still was hard for them to get out. But we finally get to the best part of this, which, well, one of the two best parts. A, Donald Glover doing his YouTube channel, the Calrissian Chronicles, Chapter 4, which is awesome. <laughs> and um, L3 gets to die, which is amazing. <laughs> Not in this movie much, but, like, it's just way too... Again, it's the Jar Jar. It's too much all in a short section. Like, tone her down a little bit, just like Jar Jar could have been toned down a little in his sections of the movie, or just have a smaller role. You know, Chewie getting his nice little goodbye to the other Wookiee was fine uh lando suddenly giving up his ship so that han could fly like you this is like his prized possession and i i never really get that l3 is important enough to lando that he has to go back there to be with her as she dies in his arms this droid while han is flying his ship like he doesn't know if han can actually fly and he just lets him take it uh but we get you know the fun little gun turret thing that beckett's in as they're making their getaway here and then the real action highlight, the real climax of this movie, which is the Kessel Run. So what is the Kessel Run? People always wondered. Uh, w- there was always the controversy with the, that line where it's like, it's the ship that made the Kessel Run less than 12 parsecs when they're referring to it being fast. And then George Lucas always said, well, a parsec, because a parsec is a literal thing. It is a distance. It's a measurement. It's like it's like saying it's the, the car that made the Winnipeg Run in less than <laughs> 50 kilometers. Um <laughs> It's not a thing of speed, and the Georgia said, "Well, it, the Kessel Run and the Parsecs was about the navigation. The Millennium Falcon was always fast because of you know, its navigational system, which they actually have makes sense here because they say we can't get out of here before this coaxium destabilizes. So you know we need a better route. Well, let's upload this really annoying droid's mind into the Falcon." <laughs> Which I actually kind of do like in a way the attitude they gave L3. Not the extent they went to it, but the fact they made L3 this this very unusual droid. Because Han's always talking to the ship like it's a real thing. And even C-3PO later on when he's plugged in. I'm going to be interested to get to that. Where he's like, where did your ship learn to communicate and uh, stuff like that. Uh, you get the Falcon actually has a bit of personality. But L3 charts a course which is going to get them out of here in less than 12 parsecs. But they still have to fly it. 
which is awesome. And uh, this is the one visually striking sequence of the movie. This is where the cinematography doesn't kill it. Because we get so much of these clouds everywhere and these asteroids with these giant shards coming out of it. And the the big Star Destroyer reveal where we get that Imperial music, which this is the original Imperial March is that music from A New Hope before they even had the Imperial March. It's like, dun, da, da, da. That plays here. The TIE fighters coming after them when they said, they're not going to send TIE fighters just for this. And you realize, well, fuel is that valuable. Uh, eventually, through all this incredible flying, Han puts the brakes on, which blows up. That's one of these great moments, uh, kind of like the uh, Laura Dern flying through hyperspace, through the vehicles, where you're like, oh, I like that they're bringing environments into this. Like, how do you take out TIE fighters? We'll scrape the surface of an asteroid, and then all the rocks are just going to crash through the windows of these TIE fighters. That was cool effect. Eventually, they find this gravity well in space here, uh, and there's a giant space creature which is chasing them, which, again, is just, this is all awesome. And uh, they lure it towards the uh, gravity well so it gets sucked in. But unfortunately, the Falcon's being sucked in too. How are we going to get free of this? Let's inject the coaxium, the unrefined coaxium, directly into the Falcon. This does a good job of showing how dangerous it is and that they actually need to get out of here quickly. Not only is this stuff destabilizing, but one drop of this is going to give like this massive burst of energy. But the fact that they do it, it just sort of stalls. That's another one of those like Star Wars look forwards, flash forwards, where you would always get the Falcon just stalling in the middle of doing something. And they inject this thing in there, and you think it's just going to kick off, and instead it just dies. <laughs> and then eventually kicks off and then blasts them free. They have that great moment where it's like, remember that thing where we went through the tunnel? Yeah, it didn't work. Well, this time it's going to work. <laughs> uh, they slip through. Uh, he gets that line. Another one of those, if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll get it, where he says to Chewie for the first time, punch it, which is what Han always says to Chewie is punch it. It's awesome. They break three. Uh, the, the Kessel run is over. Small section of the movie, but I remember even seeing this the first time and be like, man, that did not disappoint. Like, that's the one moment in this movie you walk away from. You're like, I love the Kessel run. It's like the pod race in Phantom Menace. Doesn't matter what you think of the movie, the Kessel run's got to be a fan with everybody. Well, um, getting back to Lando, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino, whatever you want to call him. Um, I, I think he's, like, so much more Lando than... Um, Anseling bought Gort is Han, um, but I, I think you sold it. It's his mannerisms that he does so well because looks wise, it's not exactly um, spot on. But I think kind of just it's his man and he's, it's his tone of voice, the way he kind of pronounces some words <laughs> as well. I think you just you really do get that Billy D. Williams vibe, but I know in the review, like yeah, you mentioned a lot about how he doesn't quite smile as much as uh, Lando does, but uh, you know it could just be he's happier when he's older in Cloud City. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of depressed right now, maybe I don't know. Yeah, but he's dealing with all these uh, unions and trade disputes. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I like I, I do like the lead up when. Um, Amelia Clark's basically explaining him. At one point, does she like reference that he's got a big dong? Basically, like he's like, oh yes, and he's got a very impressive something. And Hansel's just all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> um, so you know, and let's be honest, you know, Lando has a big dong. Like, <laughs> there's a reason why men are confident, and that's because they've got big dongs. All right, that's why I'm I'm very confident. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. 
it's, it's all right. That that's that's why like Noah's not very confident. Um, I, no way you didn't take any offense <laughs> to that. Because usually when the topic of you and Don's comes up, you know you're used to somebody laughing once it's. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> once they see my dong, Colin, is that what you're trying to say? Uh, you moof milker. <laughs> you, can't, you can't bring yourself to say it, can you? You little mature Canadian. Um, but yet I, I like this whole card scene, and it is kind of like that. Is that moment you think that um he's going to win it, but he doesn't, and cool. Uh, but then, oh yeah, L three. Um, yeah, just <laughs> it's. I think you oh. mentioned on the review that she's maybe the worst character in the history of Star Wars. Uh, um, yeah. her or Rose. I still don't like Rose. Sorry, Rose. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, she's just ugh. It's just ugh. Just don't get it. And like I was going to say, she's so pointless to this whole situation. But yeah, okay, cool. We've got to explain why people talk to the navigation computer on the Millennium Falcon and all that sort of stuff. Okay, fine. But, you know, at the same time, like, it, they could have come up with something better. Um, the whole, um, yeah, the the bit where they come onto the Millennium Falcon for the first time. Because it's got, like, you know how there's the gap in the front of it? Because that gets destroyed, doesn't it, in the castle yeah. run? Like, that's kind of explained in a weird um, way. Is it? Well, I think it's actually when they crash land on the planet after the castle run. Because it kind of, it dives nose first in and then it's buried. Because Han sort of is like, yeah, not, not a bad landing. And you don't, it's buried so you don't see it. It's only when Lando lifts off that you actually see that piece broke off. But maybe it was earlier, I don't know. But that's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Like, I just thought that was what the ship looked like. I didn't realize yeah. like it needed an explanation that that's why there's a middle bit missing. Because it, it kind of, it doesn't look like it when you see the actual ship. Like, it's, that there's something broken off in the middle there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's it's kind of strange. I also, I don't know how I feel the one random bit when Han's talking about his uh, dad, that, oh, he used to build things like that. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do we need some random connection to why he loves this ship so much? Because his dad well, built them? Like, okay, but at yeah. the same time, it's just kind of, it's a random throwaway. Like, I don't, I think him being connected to the ship is fine that he escaped and did the Kessel Run. Like, you can fall in love with something like that after that. Yeah, it would have been just as easy to just say, you know, I grew up on the shipyard, so I saw these things all the time. Like, I, yeah, I don't know why we needed to actually have any backstory about a dad that's not part of this, unless they had plans for a sequel where he eventually meets his father. Yeah. And it's well. Darth Maul, you know. <laughs> I am your father, uh, and we will have our revenge with the Jedi. Shut up, Darth Maul. Um, <laughs> no, don't shut up, Darth Maul. Talk more, we like you. Um... Is this the sequence to one of the dumb L3 lines when Lando's like, do you need anything? Oh, equal rights? Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> or when they're talking about the sex and it's like, uh, how does that actually work? Trust oh. me, it works. Ugh. Like, it's, it's like, I, I, that is one of these things where it's kind of like a throwaway line where you, you're not meant to want to know what, ha- I want to know how that works. Like, I, yeah. like, it's not, and that's not even me being a sick bastard. Like, I just legitimately am, like intrigued like what does that mean that lando fucks the millennium falcon like when it's inside the thing like (laughs) i you know i don't want to think too much about it but like sadly enough when she mentioned that your mind does go racing and you're like well how what is actually talking the only thing maybe she's performing some services for him i mean she's still got claws and hands right (laughs) that's (laughs) something she can do but whether he can give anything to her that i don't want to go there I do, yeah, I, I like the uh, the chess sequence. 
you know, it's just, it's kind of just like a funny send away. Chew is like, <laughs> like, I want him to just get up there and rip Beckett's arms out. Like, just, you know, like, um, is the whole closet cape scene meant to just be a Han Leia moment from Empire Strikes Back? I think like, so. Eh, like, this is the thing, though, where, like, I don't want to see that because at the end of the day, we don't need to get an emotional connection to these two because we know that who he's going to end up with. So I kind of like, I don't know, does it not take away and, from that Empire scene just a little bit? Yeah, well, I don't even know if it takes away from it, but I think why do we need that when they have a moment later on during one of her many double turns? But we also know that this story isn't done. This The entire... Cl- cliffhanger of this movie is their story's not finished yet so it's not like there were plans when they were writing this that they were they needed this emotional connection because there was still more story to tell this was just supposed to be like the introduction to whatever their story is yeah uh, it's yeah anyway, i mean amelia clark's kind of does she even need to be in this movie like not just the actress i didn't mean it like that i meant just the character because I mean, yeah, going back to you need sort of a reason for Han to be able to, you know, want to go back and do this. But, like, I, I feel like she's just... It's kind of like Jar Jar and Phantom Menace. Like, do, he doesn't really need to go to Tatooine, does he? He's just kind of there. Yeah. Like, she doesn't really need to go on this well, mission. Yeah, she doesn't have to go on the mission. Um, I think the story would have been served just fine, maybe even better, if she wasn't on the mission. And then he gets back, and it's all just about, well, I need to do this because I've got to save her. It almost feels like, okay, if you're... You know, out now, why don't you two both run away? Like, a lot of those conversations they have later on, that's what the meat is of the story. Nothing happens from the point they leave together for this mission and they get back, other than this one moment in the closet together, that furthers their relationship anymore. Their entire story is when they are on Corellia, when they meet again, you know, right away, and she's like, well, I didn't get out. And then everything, once they're actually, you know, on the planet getting ready to make the exchange. Nothing actually happens here in this, and even action-wise, other than her Terrace Cossie moment, she doesn't contribute anything to this heist. They don't need an extra person. Yeah, exactly. And that, um, the, is it Terrace Cossie, the one that she meets with in that room? Um, she, he looks like Iron Man, um, the character thing on the planet. Anyway. Um, oh. oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about now. <laughs> yes, thank you. Also played by uh, John Favreau. <laughs> <laughs> um, or Mike <Mikey> Williams. <laughs> The the whole breakout, you know, stealing the crack, crack, uh, the fuel. Thank you, um, <laughs> Ansel Elgort. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's just like you know, oh, freedom for all the droids. Like, uh, you know, but uh, the one bit I do like is I like it when Chewbacca meets up with the other Wookies, and there's that scene when he like walks up to that thing, and he picks him up and smashes him against the roof of the the <laughs> building, and just is like throwing all these things. I love it when he rips the arms off in the elevator. And he's like, Chewbacca's kind of like one of these characters like everyone loves Chewbacca and I like I just Chewbacca to me was just always there I was never got the you know I didn't dislike him I just you know cool but like I really am loving Chewbacca the more I think about Star Wars (laughs) like just you know what it is like like here's the thing I I mean I did love Chewbacca in the originals like I've said Revenge of the Sith one of the things I was most excited about is we get to see Chewie again but even in the original movies I mean Outside of A New Hope, I don't know if we really ever got Chewbacca. I can't wait to talk about the original intention of Chewbacca that kind of got cut down in editing uh, that was different. But Empire and Jedi, Chewie is just kind of there. So I kind of get what you're saying. But 
if I'm going to compliment the Disney movies for one thing, they have na- three times in a row now nailed Chewbacca better than mm-hmm. even the original movies did. Even Last Jedi, where it was a tiny role, there were moments in there like, that's the Chewbacca I want to see. I want to see him bursting through that door. You know, I want to see him roasting a porg on a fire. Like, they're <laughs> getting the beast back to Chewbacca. <laughs> Oh, that pork scene is like the greatest scene in all of Last Jedi, and that's not saying much because there's nothing really good in that movie. But like, no, I, I, I laughed out loud in the movies. That was fantastic. Um, yeah, so the the bit though that I think I mentioned that kind of really to me looks like a reminded me so much of the original trilogy is the whole Kessel Run. Just like the 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 chemistry between everyone on the ship and kind of just the music. Cause you hear like so many of, you know, John Williams scores, don't you? Like you hear the asteroid run, you know, snippets of that, mm. oh, um, yeah. you, you know, bits like that. Like it's just, and it's just a style it's done with the way they're all talking and um, bantering with each other through that. Like that to me, I was just like, Holy crap. This just really gives me flashes of the original trilogy. I think that's just done so well. I love that moment where you see the star destroyer, coming through the clouds and everything and oh. yeah like it's like oh you know they're not going to send anything after us and all of a sudden the tie fighters come after them like so good i love and i love that tie fighter sound like that i was say, trying to explain to mallory like you know this is like one of my favorite the sounds in star wars the, the distinct sound of the tie <laughs> perfect i feel like i'm in one right now um so yeah it's just so awesome and like i i love like that moment when kind of they put the drop of uh, fuel in it and it kind of just it stalls and it's kind of <laughs> and then it's like and then like when they're, when they're closing like through the thing and it's kind of like you know oh, yeah remember when we did that no it didn't work like this time it will like that it actually kind of really uh, randomly reminds me of independence day when they're escaping the ship right at the end oh like, yeah must go faster must go faster and then will's yeah. like elvis has left the building <laughs> and jeff goldman's like oh 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 thank you thank you very much um Great movie. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's just all of it is fantastic. And yeah, I think I agree with you. It, it is up there with like the, the pod race and things like that. That like, even if you don't like this movie, it's, it is up there. And I, I think kind of like, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of in a way just fan service because like you hear him mention this and like, oh, you know, the Kessel Run. But like, it's, it is kind of cool to see it at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like what we said in, um, what is Attack of the Clones when they when they mention the Clone Wars and then that's just a throwaway line by Leia, isn't it? Like you served with my father mm-hmm. in the Clone Wars. And like, hey, the Clone Wars, I know them. I've heard about that. So like, it's like the Kessel Run. Hey, the Kessel Run, I've heard about that. So and that's really one of only about two things, as I think I said earlier, that you learn from Han's backstory in the original yeah. trilogy. So yeah, um, this whole sequence is fantastic. So I think kind of again, if we were doing Hall of Fame moments, this would definitely be it for this movie, probably. And, I think and just with the this- cameo. And, and what? Ham what? <laughs> the ham. No, the cameo oh. <laughs> that we get. Oh, the yeah. cameo, yeah. Well, I think we should do that. Like, even if we, you know, do it all at the end in our in our Rise of Skywalker preview episode, I think we should pick, like, one or two Hall of Fame scenes from all of these movies. Because, I mean, the this is a massive franchise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, we'd, we'd have, uh, I'm sure, at least, you know, Kylo Ren in The Last Jedi. Yeah. Well, there's at least one good thing in there. The Porg. Uh, or Lord. The, the Porg, yeah. Lights. Porg on the fire. <laughs> yeah. um, Your mum joke. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, can I just quickly... add one thing? Uh, really, sorry, really quickly. Yeah, I just interrupt. I do also like the play on, um, you know, I've got a bad feeling about this when he's like, I've got a really good feeling about this. Like, I oh, actually yeah. kind of like that. Yeah. 
I, it's, the way he's, I got a really good feeling about this. <laughs> like, seriously, I love Alden Ehrenreich because he does things different. And, you know, here's another thing where Star Wars doesn't get the free pass other movies do. I'll, I'll mention when we get to the box office how this doesn't get a free pass that other movies do. But uh, uh, even in comparison to, like, Star Trek, you know, Star Trek has just as loyal of a fan base as Star Wars does. It's just not as big. And when Chris Pine was brought on to replace William Shatner as Captain Kirk, they kind of warned fans from the beginning. They said, he's not going to be doing a William Shatner impression. In fact, you're going to see very few similarities. I think it, there's only one line in the first Star Trek movie with Chris Pine. And it's one of his, it's in the last scene of the movie where he sounds like he's even doing William Shatner. Other than that, they just let him create his own character. Here, it's like, there's no way for, you know, there's no way for anybody to be pleased. Because Alden Ehrenreich, when he does what I think is some incredible Harrison Ford mannerisms and and uh, speech patterns and stuff like that, he's blamed because his voice doesn't sound like Harrison Ford's voice. You know, when he gets the look down, he's blamed because he doesn't look enough like Harrison Ford. Chris Pine looks completely different from William Shatner, went out of his way to make his performance something completely different from William Shatner, and was applauded for it. And... I just don't know why the same you know thing doesn't apply here because like that I've got a really good feeling about this. That's one of those moments where like he he really shines showing personality like that. But Harrison Ford would never deliver that line in that way, and yet I think he does he does well when he's not doing Harrison Ford as well. Like I like that he has these manners, but still was allowed to create his own character. Um, quickly, I'll talk about uh, Amelia Clark here uh, because I I feel like we're gonna run into this pattern for two movies in a row where the, the lead female character is, you know, the, the one I'm most critical about. I actually don't mind her in this movie. I think she's adequate. I think her character is adequate. I said, my biggest complaint is that I don't think she needs to be here for the whole movie. I, I do agree with you. I think that she would be a better presence in this movie in the first act and the last act and not in the, the actual heist stuff in the middle here. Um, but I also said earlier, I don't think that she, perfectly fits blockbuster action which is weird because game of thrones is kind of a blockbuster series and she is one of the closest things to an action hero in that show but what people also you know don't consider is that her character spent i think four or five seasons of that show never uttering a word of english she speaks in a fictional language having to deliver a performance in a language that doesn't exist being subtitled and does such a good job of creating a character and selling emotion in a language that doesn't exist, mostly just standing around talking to people with subtitles in a language that doesn't exist. It's the challenge of what she did on Game of Thrones that I think made it so great. And in Me Before You, it, it's almost like when, um, you know, Jennifer Garner was on Alias. And I mean, I'm, I'm like one biggest Alias fan out there. Uh, in fact, just this week, I was I was this close to buying, the, you know, those pop figures that they make for yes. all these movies and stuff. They have like I'm four. I'm staring pop- at one right now. I've got the oh, Jeff, for, Goldblum, Jeff Goldblum, uh, the shirtless yeah. Jeff Goldblum <laughs> broken leg one. I've got that. Uh, I've got a Michael Jackson one, and I've got a Ferris Bueller one. They're the three I've got. You know, I think you'd find this exciting. They've got these James Bond ones out there. They just announced they're doing a whole bunch of new James Bond pop figures, which include Judy Dench pop figure. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. I gotta have it on pre-order. Is there uh, gonna be a Davidov <laughs> one? If there's a Davidov one, like we're getting no. There. No, but they they have like the of all the James Bonds like Daniel Craig. There's no Lazenby yet though. Sadly, he's oh, the only one who's not well. They're not and no real Dolph- then. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's a, if there's a Brosnan, then yeah, there's a Brosnan. That's one of the, the ones that's coming. But anyway, <laughs> squeeze it. Thought I've forgotten you. Eh? 
<laughs> but uh, I, uh, I'm i such a big fan of Alias that I, this week I was this close to buying. They released four pop figures of Jennifer Garner's character from Alias in four different disguises. The only thing that prevented me from buying it is I'm like, well, nobody's going to realize this from Alias because it just looks like I've got four women wearing dresses and bikinis with wigs on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know if, that, if anybody's going to get that's Alias. But like Jennifer Garner became an action star on Alias. And then she did the Daredevil and Electra movie and stuff like that. And then she did 13 going on 30, which was suddenly like, okay, this is what she was made for. She's good in action. I mean, I love that she did that Peppermint movie. But her real strength was doing comedy and even just doing romantic comedies and stuff like that. And even dramas. I think she's a great dramatic actress. And coming from somebody who was introduced to her and loves her in an action television show, I think she's better in that. Same thing for Amelia Clark. It's not that she does bad in the action. I just think that blockbusters give you such a limited range and what she's able to do with the complexities of Game of Thrones and especially Me Before You or romantic at times comedy just showing a lot more personality that's what she's suited for I just think she's miscast in this movie more than anything otherwise I don't think there'd be anything wrong with this I think if in all honesty if you cast Kirsten Dunst in this role even though she's way too old for it I feel Kirsten Dunst is better suited for this because she she's sort of made her career off doing these type of blockbusters. Maybe part of it is just thinking Amelia Clark deserves a little better than just, you know, dumb action. Um, but anyways, we're going to kind of go through all the last section of the movie here. A lot happens, but funny enough, not a lot of action from this point. I mean, I think I had that same reaction when I first saw this movie that in a way it kind of just, you know, mellows out at the end here. Uh, but I love when they, they crash on the planet. As I said, the, the nose of the Falcon's buried, so you can't see that piece that's broken off, uh, which is the Falcon we all know from later on. Uh, and Chewie's like, <laughs> uh, about the Kessel Run, he goes, uh, about 12 parsecs, and he's like, not if you round down, buddy. <laughs> such a small moment, but like, that's one of those things that feels like Han Solo. Like You finally get the, the, the Kessel Run 12 parsecs. It actually makes it better that Han Solo is slightly embellishing that. It's like, Yes, he has this record. He has blown away the record. They said nobody can make it out of here in less than 20 parsecs. 13 is still blowing it away, but he's like, I'm going to tell him. I just made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs. He's just telling everybody he knows. Not if you round down. It's just awesome. Uh, and also Lando just waiting on the ship. Like, I get he's injured, but somehow it actually makes me feel this is more Lando-like. That he's like, yeah, I'm not going to mess up my pretty face there. Let you guys go out there and... You just bring me my money. I'm going to sit here and relax. Like, that's a Lando to me. Um, as Beckett's trying to sell this, um, that, you know, uh, we can't pull one over on Dryden. You know, everybody serves someone, even Dryden boss. They're setting up, oh, there's another big guy in this galaxy uh, that, uh, you know, you, you don't even realize they're about to introduce. They don't even make it obvious enough they're going to introduce it. Uh, Kira is talking to him here. We get Emphis Ness showing up uh as kira had that moment where you know han's basically talking about himself as an outlaw this is obviously going to set up the climax and she says i know who you are han you're the good guy and he goes i'm not a good guy like again it's it's starting a story arc that will if they had found a way to carry through with this would have made han solo feel like more of a complete character i love in a new hope that he's just introduced but i also love this slightly casino royale like opening that they give him where you're getting, they were going somewhere with this trilogy. So it's more than just the Darth Maul thing that makes me disappointed we didn't get somewhere else with this. Because her saying you're the good guy, and then her actually betraying him is awesome. So Emphis Ness shows up. Uh, we get a bit of a standoff here. 
He's saying, like, uh, another one of these Han Solo con games. It's like, we got 30 hired guns on that ship. All I do is give them the signal, and you're all dead. And that moment, without them even zooming in on anything, you just see the ship leave. <laughs> Lando just abandoning them is awesome. Emphis Nest gets unmasked. We get that, to me, it still looks like a nine-year-old girl, even though it's a grown woman. Uh, but it's kind of this cool twist that, like, Emphis Nest is not what you thought. She gives this background that, you know, we all come from these raided worlds of the Empire. We're not marauders. Uh, you know, we're allies. You don't even get that they're going with the rebellion at this point. Han has this moment where he contemplates this. He comes up with his plan. Uh, he tells Beckett the plan, which is cool that it happens off camera. That for what we're going to see that happens later on, you know, that Han starts his final con game here. Uh, Beckett's like, I, I can't do this. I'm going to run. I'm going to Tatooine. Um and what's in Tatooine? It's like, I got one last score. There's this guy there who's putting together, you know, kind of a crew. I'll finally put my, you know, have my one last score and I'll get to put my money together, go play the harpsichord or whatever it is he wants to play in this movie. Uh, so we lead to the final meeting with Paul Bettany. And this is Paul Bettany's best moment here. Uh, it's the exact same thing we saw with him and Beckett earlier on, where he's consoling him. It's like, you know, you know he's saying, sorry, Beckett didn't make it. Oh, Han, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Here take a seat and then when they're sitting down hans revealing it was like oh this is what you came for and he says the coaxium the way that paul bettany's playing it like so cool he's like why don't you open it for me it's like it's slightly dangerous but just playful at the same time like it's just there's so many layers to this character i'm sad that we couldn't get more of it and he's okay here you go bring one over to me he's eating like these oysters while he's doing like come on bring it over to me he goes uh i don't think that's a good idea it's like han I never asked twice, right? Yeah. And the way when he gets it, he's just like, this is incredible. I mean, if I didn't know better, this looks exactly like the real thing. It's just so much fun. And then Han, you're, the audience didn't know the plan. So you kind of speculate that maybe Han's presenting him fake stuff here. So then when he's like, it looks like the real thing, the audience thinks they're in on the plan. This is one of those other fun little surprises the movie gets you with. What are you talking about? It is the real thing. And then he says, you know, uh, my associate you know, has told me, you know, uh, something else. And we get that whole don't trust anybody plan that uh, Beckett gave him earlier, uh, where you realize Beckett has actually double-crossed him, and um, he, you know, is now working with Dryden because it's easier than him getting away with it. But then it gets revealed that this actually is the real coaxium. And Han says something like, you know, uh, it's just a shame that you sent all of your hired guns out there to that battle with Emphis Nest. You're almost undefended now. And we get this, you know, triple fight scene here. So now Beckett's like, all right, I'm back on your side. And this just starts the entire climax just being everybody's betraying everybody every 30 seconds. This is the one thing I really like it in concept, but I feel like it could have been executed better. People are going to, you know, scoff when I say this, but you know a movie that actually handled this well? Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> so, um, in that movie, there's the Ray Winstone character who flip-flops so much that at one point, Indy says, what are you like now, a triple agent? And that's basically what happens here with Beckett and Kira. Because we get another moment where you think Kira is not with him, and then Beckett basically you know, is turning him on her, and you think she's going along with it. Instead, she starts fighting with Beckett, uh, or she kills Beckett here. We get a couple of the the fights. She was supposed to sacrifice somebody. Uh, so now we're like, okay, she's back on Han's side. And, um, of course, the 
main twist of this being, you know, she says, Han, go out there. Beckett's going to, or Chewie's going to need your help because Beckett's got Chewie now. So the funny thing is the scene ended and you think Beckett's on their side, but no, he's actually taking Chewie hostage. So Han goes after him and they're kind of setting this up like Kira's going to follow along. Another thing I don't think was executed so well. If she had been like, I'll be right behind you. And then she has this scene with her higher power, her authority, where you realize she's not coming. Because from Han's perspective, he thinks she's coming with him or going to meet him at least later on. Because she's like, you know, we need our, our money still. And you see all these jewels hanging around. Uh, but in the end, Han just sort of leaves. And there's not much reaction when she kind of betrays him. And that's where I think this could have been handled a little bit better. Um, but the, the double climax here, I guess, being, again, not much action going on. The battle that's happening between Emphis and her crew uh, and Beckett and his crew is just sort of an afterthought. You have Kira, you know, contacting her boss with her secret ring communicating the hologram. And I don't even think this was so obvious when we saw the hologram because you just see this hood and the voices. You're like, oh, what is this? Is this going to be the emperor or something? I remember thinking it's the emperor. Mm-hmm. And instead we get the big reveal. But we'll get to that in a second because the Han thing is less exciting. So Han meets Beckett and, you know, he he's trying to save Chewie or whatever. Um, Beckett has this great moment. Uh, sometimes this movie does a good job of the surprises that they have with you as they're both trying to play each other. And he says to Han something about uh, Kira, you know, uh, she, she's a survivor. You should trust her. And he says, uh, I need to tell you the most important thing. And then Han shoots him, which is great on so many levels because he actually says, I need to tell you the most important thing. And he, you get a surprise kill from the audience, but also the in joke that Han shoots first here, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I don't know how obvious that is to people. Um, and he says, you did the right thing. I would have killed you. Uh, that's when he sees Kira's ship leaving. So he realizes he shouldn't have, you know, saved him, whatever. So the stuff that happens with Kira, obviously, is the big thing here. Uh, that the reveal turns out to be that the, the hologram reveals in its Darth Maul. <gasps> I don't think there's anybody. Did you just like gasp or did you throw up there? What was that? I was a silly gasp. I'm still shocked by this. Yeah. It's it plays so well. Like this is my third time seeing it, and unlike I said with some things in this, like the Paul Bettany, I sort of forget, and I'm like, oh yeah, Paul Bettany's in this. Like, I always know it's coming, and yet it's so effective the way the reveal is. It's kind of like that moment in Attack of the Clones, which I think we almost glossed over, where they said, you know, we need to protect the plans for our secret weapon, and you see the Death Star hologram. It's like, when you see it, it's like, well, that's actually handled really well. It still has that great moment of surprise. But just the fact that it is Darth Maul, like, diehard fans knew he wasn't dead. I mean, for people who aren't diehard fans, it was probably even a bigger shock. But you get the robotic arms here from the Clone Wars animated series. You get the idea that he's not living as a Sith. He just turns into this crime lord. And it's the perfect fit. They they so subtly mentioned even Dryden Voss is accountable to somebody. And now you realize Darth Maul is the godfather of the galaxy. And that was that moment when I was watching this theater. And even as I was enjoying this climax, thinking, you know, I don't think I need a sequel, but this is fun. And then that happened. It's like a switch goes off. You're like, I need the sequel. I need the sequel now. Like, I need to mm-hmm. know what happens next. Because it's not just we got to see Darth Maul. It's not just like the cameo in Spider-Man Homecoming where you're like, oh, they're bringing this person back. I can't wait to see this person. It's the role they have for him. Where you're like, we're going to get to see Darth Maul in a, a type of story that, that is beyond your wildest dreams. Like, this could be make him the greatest villain in Star Wars history. And I'm so sad we're never going to get it. But 
man, what a moment where he's revealed there. And then we get the lightsaber that he turns on and says, you know, come with me, Kira. I have a feeling we're going to be very closely together. And that's where the Kira story becomes interesting to me in future sequels that Han has to watch her leave. He knows she's betrayed him now. But he's still loyal to her and thinks that, you know, she's doing this just because she has to, like she said at the beginning. Nobody's ever completely out. Um, but now she's working with Darth Maul, and I just – I'm still thinking about the ideas of the sequel being, you know, Han gaining his reputation on Tatooine, uh, you know, getting involved with Jabba the Hutt. Maybe we'll see Greedo in there, possibly Boba Fett. And that in the background of all that, you have Darth Maul involved in these crime families, and we've already been told about – you know, Crimson Dawn can't cross these other crime families. The Hutt's warring with Darth Maul. It's just too exciting to think about. I mean, I wish, I wish that had been the last shot of the movie because we actually still have to talk about just some leftover stuff here, <laughs> uh, which is a Warwick Davis cameo, which is great. Um, I, he's got to set the record for most Star Wars cameos. And by is the that, end. Did you not mention in the review that that's actually the same character as he was in Phantom Menace? Did I? You know, that's that's interesting. I I completely forgot about that. Uh, do you have it opened? Uh, I, I'll find it, but I just I know you said that like it's actually been shown in canon that he's actually mm-hmm. reprising the same little cameo that he had in the Phantom Menace. So you need to find that. But I mean, I mean, the Warwick Davis cameo is cool, just not just because he pops up in all the Star Wars movies and something like Force Awakens. We're gonna get. You don't know it's Warwick Davis. It's one of these things you Google afterwards. And obviously, he started as a guy in a mask, but. Because this is a Ron Howard Star Wars movie, it's all the more special because Ron Howard, his first really big blockbuster was Willow, even though the movie bombed. And that was Warwick Davis when he was like 17, 18 years old as a leading man, which is something that's, I mean, other than Peter Dinklage, nobody's ever done since then. You know, this, this, uh, I don't, I want to say the wrong thing, this smaller actor um, getting like the hero role. And Warwick Davis made his career off of it. Ron Howard made his career off of it. And then he gives him a cameo in here, which is fun. Um, and obviously the the setup for what will be Han Solo is he's talking with Emphis Nest. And she's like, you know, uh, mentioning the rebellion here for the first time. I'm shocked that people didn't say that Emphis was Ray's mom. Because, like, <laughs> this is the, the sequels. Everything is, oh, we're going to get to that next week with uh, Jin. Oh, she's going to be Ray's mom and Leia's Ray's mom. And this person, Ray is Obi-Wan's granddaughter. Like, the fact that you have this mother of the rebellion here, that people aren't going to con- try to connect the dots. Like, it's the only time that a female character has appeared in Star Wars and they haven't said that this is going to be Ray's parents or grandparents or something. Uh, but, you know, she's saying, you know, a rebellion. And he says, maybe some other time, which is kind of cool. Uh, Han eventually finds Lando at the card table on this, you know, cool little Hawaiian-like planet. He basically attacks Lando and finds a hidden card. They say, hey, it's good to see you, buddy. And he says, let's play another game. Oh, you really got it bad for the Falcon. No, trust me, it's mutual. Uh, And as they get to their their final showdown of the card game, and Lando realizes he doesn't have the card, I love that Han's like, you got everything you need there, buddy? Like, they both realize they played each other. Uh, Han wins. The movie essentially ends here with the moment that we all thought we were going to get earlier on. And I actually remember thinking this movie's going to end and just set up Han getting the sequel at a later point. But instead, he wins the Falcon here. Uh, and the final moment, him hanging the dice, which, again, nauseating reminder of The Last Jedi, um, <laughs> as him and Chewie fly off in the Falcon. Uh, it's just it's a great final scene here. There's almost too many final scenes. And it does kind of feel weird that this 
whole climax of the movie happens with no action, considering there's not a lot of story going on here. But again, I think this is one of the things that improves the more you watch this, that the movie has a really good script, at least dialogue-wise, even if the story is just sort of stock standard, that I, I love all these you know, talking scenes between Beckett and Han and Kira and and Paul Bettany and Chewie and all this stuff that you don't realize this entire climax is just talking because it's actually played so well. And then just getting to see that the, the, the interaction between Han and Lando where they're both friends and rivals at the same time. It was a great way to end the movie on. Also, the uh, another little line that you get when they land on the planet, you know, I hate you, I know. Um, yeah. like, <laughs> did, did that happen? I missed that. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, like, it's oh, literally awesome. when they land and they bury the thing in the sand just before Lando takes off, like, he puts his arm around him and he's like, I hate you, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, you know, yeah, like... Confirmed, uh, confirmed here, um, Warwick Davis playing the same character. Yeah, no, I just, I was about to say I saw that too. So, yeah, no, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting little thing. It's clever how they are able to connect those into it as well. Um, the, the reveal um, that... You know, Emphis Nest is a woman. Like, I feel like they try to play that up. Like, you know, shock this, you know, person marauder is a woman, not a man. Like, you know, it's like, who gives a shit? Like, it's a, it's a cool character that's doing this. Like, why do we need to be as shocked that it's a female? Well, see, that's where I'm, I'd love to know what the intention was here. Because, again, my shock at it was always that she looked so young. And I don't know if that's just a thing of the actress, but. I kind of always took away as just my personal thing is like, oh, I can't believe that it's just this young girl, which almost makes sense when you see that Princess Leia, this young girl, is running the rebellion later on. But yeah, if it is something where it's like, oh, it's a woman, it's like, man, Star Wars, you've done that so many times that like, let's just have the characters be the heroes. You know, people would stop making a big deal about it if you stop making a big deal about it, you know? And that's what I kind of was thinking too. It's like, you know, in this day and age where it's it's about creating this world of movies and media where it, it shouldn't be a shock. Like, let's not pay attention. Like, this is what you and I talked a lot about in Captain Marvel. It's like, we don't have a problem with this being a female-led movie and a female action hero. It's the fact that you've just got to point it out every five seconds. Like, it's yeah. kind of just like, like, let's just watch a movie without mm-hmm. the reference to the fact, hey, everyone, guess what? You're watching a woman kicking ass. This is unusual, <laughs> isn't it? It's like, I don't mm-hmm. give a shit. Like, I just want to watch an awesome movie with an awesome character. I don't care what gender they are. So that, that to me, is just kind of like this moment here. But um, I like the bit when kind of Lando just flies away. <laughs> uh, you know, like, oh, there's so many men. They're coming out to get you. And I just sort of, they cut to Chewie's facial expression and Woody Harrelson. And then Han just kind of like walks backwards and joins them. <laughs> oh, it's funny. But um, yeah, I like this sort of seeds of the rebellion. I think it's kind of, it's... You know, it's not as in your face with the word hope every ten seconds that we've got in the next bloody movie. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I love the the Paul Bettany the way he plays this off and just you know the as I said before, I love that line. He's like, you know, no, I don't ask twice, um, and just so casual and just the way he's ah, oh, it's so good. And like, yeah, like I agree. Like the fact that I like that the audience aren't told this plan because. Mm-hmm. You know, you were genuinely believing that this is fake stuff and that, you know, it's on the run, but then it's kind of like it's a, it's a double cross, double cross or whatever you want to call it. So it kind of, it works well. I love this um, fight, how um, Paul Beckett, uh, Paul Beckett, Paul Beckett, yeah. um, Paul Beckett, he's got like these knife things with like lasers yeah. on the end of it. I think that's pretty cool. 
um, you know, in that sort of that fight sequence. And like, this is, I think, kind of what I was saying, though, about how like a lot of stuff happens in this movie where I feel like it's, you know, it's not explained brilliantly. And I think kind of I get that too with the way that Beckett leaves here and kind of, I don't know if it's fully explained that, like, Chewbacca's held hostage here and kind of... Because mm-hmm. you, you're all of a sudden thinking, like, well, hang on a minute. Like, what? Like, he's good, he's bad. Like, huh? Like, I agree with you. Like, there's so much going on here that it's not explained that well. Um, and, yeah. So And, like, also his throwaway line about Tatooine before. I feel like since we've actually done Attack of the Clones, I feel like we think we don't need to do our yearly episode thing. But I still think we do. Like, I'm, I'm surprised you can go, Tatooine, what's on there? Sand. It's very coarse yeah. and rough and... <laughs> irritating and it gets everywhere but there's also a lot of work there so yeah we're not don't we've still got plenty of uh weeks to go in 2019 <laughs> colin we need to keep, keep that up um yeah i like the fight sequence sort of you know it's not a whole lot of action but again sort of the the menacing paul bettany with the turn of amelia clark and then you know bye-bye paul bettany and i just i don't understand why han solo is like basically like come on let's go and she's just like oh like give me a moment like he he's just like had people double and triple cross and all this sort of stuff and it's just like if i'm in that situation i'm like no i'm good i can wait with you like come on like (laughs) just being without of a three years and situation who knows what's happened so he's very quick to just believe that she's gonna go um i love the han shoots first section i think that's fantastic Um, and because, yeah, like it, you, you don't expect that, like the way it kind of comes about like that. So it's pretty cool the way that happens. Um, and, uh, poor Woody Harrelson dead, but okay. But, um, yeah, the cameo, like, oh my God, like I, I knew that Darth Maul was alive. I've, I've not seen any of the, you know, the, the cartoon series when he's alive and all that sort of stuff. But I, I've, you know, was well aware that he was alive, but it's kind of one of these things that I think you just weren't expecting it to actually come back in the live action movies. And mm-hmm. I was exactly the same as you. Like when this hologram starts coming out, I'm thinking like, oh, cool. We're going to see the emperor. We're going to see Vader. Like, you know, that's, that's all I thought it was. It was going to be the emperor of Darth Vader. That's all. I wasn't even thinking about anything remotely. And as soon as I saw Darth Maul, I like, like sat forward onto the edge of my seat. I think I let out like a, <gasps> like really yeah. loudly. Cause like, I remember, I remember in the cinema, there was probably like, there's like five people. There wasn't many people in there, but like, I, I don't, I don't know if people like turned around and looked at me with my reaction. I'd like, I, you barely get that. I feel in movies nowadays, like you actually have a legitimate drop jaw. Like, holy crap. Like there he is. Um, like I feel if, um, Hayden Christensen is in The Rise of Skywalker. Like, it's going to be an amazing moment, but like we're kind of almost loosely expecting it. Whereas yeah. this, like, nothing, nothing in my wildest dreams that I think this would happen. So I was just like blown away. And I think we said in the review episode, like, this is maybe the biggest twist we've had in Star Wars since, mm-hmm. you know, Luke, I am your father. Um, mm-hmm. So just, just an incredible moment. And like, yeah, the switch does go off straight away. Like, oh my God, sequel, sequel. But yeah. I think. I think what I've been reading since um, the Obi-Wan TV series is going to be a thing is that a lot of people are saying that they might retcon this into the Obi-Wan series because yeah. how... Because Obi-Wan and Darth Maul have a... Because doesn't Obi-Wan kill Darth Maul for good, like, eventually in the cartoon, I think, no. what I read? No. Well, because that's before this takes place, Ben. I don't know if you realise oh. that. <laughs> well, The Clone Wars... <laughs> No, 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 no. Like, but like, isn't it in? There wasn't. I was reading something about like maybe it was in a um, one of the comics or something like that. That like Darth Maul ultimately dies or something mm. like that at the hands of Obi Wan. Like, not Phantom Menace death, but anyway, like yeah. So like, what what I've been reading though is that they reckon that this will be a way they can kind of you know bring that into, which I think will be really good because 
it is a shame that we seemingly aren't going to get a sequel to this. But now that, you know, we'll see the success of all these TV ones that Disney are doing and they can easily fix it up. So I think, I, I honestly am a firm believer that this will get fixed. I don't think it's just mm-hmm. going to be a massive thing that's not going to be there. But Oh, absolutely. Oh, so good, so good. And it's it's Ray Park, isn't it, still playing yeah. um, him? But it's a different voice, is it? Yeah, well, uh, that's actually, I forgot to mention that. What's interesting about that is that um, the actor who did the voice in The Phantom Menace originally was supposed to come on, and I think he recorded the dialogue. They replaced him with Sam Witwer, who, um, I don't know how much of you saw of Smallville, but he w- was in the eighth season of Smallville, playing a human that kind of becomes Doomsday, which is like, you know, in the comics, the creature that kills Superman. Um, but he's gotten so involved in Star Wars where he was the guy that did you know, all the motion capture and stuff like that for the Force Awakens video games. He voiced the character in the Force Awakens video games. He eventually came on and did a ton of voices in both the the Clone Wars series and the Rebels TV series. So they wanted to continue to let him play the role because he did Darth Maul in the Clone Wars series. Um, now, I think the other interesting part of that is that the the actor who originally did the voice in The Phantom Menace, right around the time they were making this movie, had an interview that came out where he was extremely critical of the Star Wars movies and even his involvement in the Star Wars movies and just, the oh, I like to try to keep it off of my resume. So <laughs> there may be two parts to it of this guy putting his foot in his mouth and kind of being replaced with an actor that Lucasfilm has had this incredible relationship with now with through video games, animation, and live action. The thing, too, that I really appreciate about this cameo, among many reasons, is like, you, you know, we, we talked a lot about how some of the uh, Disney sort of movies and the sequels seem to really distance themselves from the prequels. Um, you know, obviously Rogue One doesn't because, you know, we have mm-hmm. Senator Organa in there and kind of other elements like Mustafar and everything. But I think kind of like this is just like such a moment where it's just like, holy yeah. crap, like, you know, good for them. Because, I mean, even the most Adamus prequel hater loves Darth Maul. So, mm-hmm. oh, it's just so goddamn good. So incredible. And I think kind of this and the Castle Run are just like, just what make this incredible. And I, I, I love having that feeling of seeing a movie or a TV show where you just have that such a level of, you know, connection or shock or anything over a moment or a sequence in a movie or a TV show. So it's just, it is incredible to see. Um yeah, the closing, I, I do like sort of back on, you know, when he finally wins the Millennium Falcon, it's cool. And uh, I love that shirt that Lando's wearing. It's got like um, weird patterns on it. Like, uh, it's I want one of them to wear. I'm going to dress up as Lando one time and just wear that <laughs> shirt. Um, and then, yeah, the way they sort of close it out about how like, oh, we're going to Tatooine and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. Again, this this movie needs more love. Like, it's it's not the most, it's not the greatest. It's not going to crack any of the, um, it's not going to outseed any of the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy to me in terms of ranking these movies, but it's still the best Disney one by far to me. Uh, just wanted to point out a couple of things here. One, apparently Anthony Daniels uh, is one of the, the Kessel Miners. Huh. Like, actually Anthony Daniels playing a live-action character, one of the Kessel Miners. Uh, at the end of this movie, or, or sorry, uh, during the Kessel sequence of this movie, he's <laughs> he actually has a cameo in there. Warwick Davis, as we said, plays the same one. Uh, this I, I almost forgot. I was so excited to finish talking about L3 that I skipped all over this. But the voice of L3, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, she's both a writer and an actress. Uh, her name's most now closely associated with another show we do and the second greatest movie franchise of all time, James Bond, because she's the first female writer that's been brought in to write a James Bond movie. I mean, ultimately, she's rewriting the final script, but she'll be one of the first uh, or will be the first female credited screenwriter on a Bond movie. 
Um, and she's the voice of L3, so... Uh, let's so basically, hope she another, didn't write... No Time to Die is going to suck, then, basically. Yeah. It's... <laughs> well, I'm just... I'm hoping... It, I'll be very comforted if I know that none of L3's dialogue came from her. <laughs> if yeah. it did, then I'm worried about No Time to Die. <laughs> um, anyways, so... Yeah, this movie ends. You get the Star Wars credits and all that. Um, I guess when this movie came out, every single reaction was pretty much the same thing that we had in the review episode. And now it's like it was kind of surprise and shock. Hey, this movie that everybody was so critical about turned out to be pretty good. Uh, Overall, the, uh, I guess, Rotten Tomato ratings, it is one of the lower ones for a Star Wars movie, but it's like 70%. Well, what was the Phantom Menace again? The Phantom Menace was still pretty solid. I think it was about 60 or something, wasn't it? Percent. Yeah. So I, I mean, don't the... think any of them were below 50. I don't even think Attack of the Clones was below 50. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Last Jedi was the highest, so maybe we shouldn't trust them. But 70% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, I want to read through a couple of the good and bad reviews here. Uh, this one, ugh. Um, nothing in Solo can comp- nothing in Solo can compete with a single scene in Force Awakens. But what this film does have a cape clad, what this film does have is cape clad pilot Lando Calrissian and his pal uppity droid L three three seven. That's the positive thing you come out of this movie is L three. Jesus. Um, luckily his tempers were starting to flare. Solo, a Star Wars story, has arrived to save the day. So there's a good one on there. Um. Solo is, as far as unnecessary prequels go, is not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And uh, another one here. uh, When we have to go through the scenes with emotional depth, this film loses its pulse. Uh, As a standalone film, it has a good plot, interesting characters, and well-done action scenes. As part of the classic franchise, it comes across a little disjointed and disconnected. I think most of those, except for the L3 one, are pretty fair. Kind of like what we're saying. I mean, the, the critical response for this, nothing was really glowing saying this is the greatest movie you're going to see, but there were very few bad reviews. It was all just sort of like, this is good compared to what we expected and, you know, uh, you know, adequate movie and exciting for what it was, but nothing groundbreaking. I'm seeing here that um, Phantom Menace had 54%, uh, Attack of the Clones 65%. Uh, and Revenge is 80%. So, yeah, I mean, unless you're counting the Clone Wars, which apparently only has 18%, um, how does the Clone Wars have 18% and the Holiday Special has 30%? Yeah. What? what, what, uh, because what? Every, everything connected to the original trilogy gets a free pass. And The Last Jedi has 91%. The Force Awakens, uh, 93%. What? Yeah. Um, but I, but that you also have to wonder, like, we read through the reviews. When The Phantom Menace first came out, it was primarily positive reviews. So when you get a movie that's been around for 20 years, you got 20 years worth of you know bad opinions and stuff like that. It's kind of like I looked on IMDb and saw that Solo was still at a 7 on IMDb and The Last Jedi is at like a 7.1. Guaranteed, 5, 10 years from now, Solo is going to be more well-regarded than The Last Jedi. It's just closer to 80, you know, 10 years from now when there's maybe a revival of uh, uh, the, the love for Solo. I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, all right. Um, (laughs) Box office-wise, this is where it gets a bit annoying because this movie made over $200 million domestically. Uh, Worldwide, it made almost $400 million. I mean, it definitely 
was lower than expectations. But then again, expectations were set not only from all the Star Wars movies, which, as we said, the only Star Wars movie that was not the highest grossing film of the year was Attack of the Clones. And even that still was like enormous box office, record-breaking box office. It's just it happened to come out in a year with Spider-Man. Out a year and a half earlier than this. And as a movie that was a standalone spin-off that had no connection to the others still made like a billion dollars the expectation was every people can but I, I guarantee you when lucasfilm and disney were putting these you know anthology films together their expectation for all of them was probably exactly what solo ended up with you know it'll maybe make 200 million domestically it'll make you know four or five hundred million worldwide let's say uh question would be marvel that's what this is this is a thor solo film this is an ant-man solo film uh, this is a Doctor Strange solo film, and the Avengers is what Episode Seven, Eight, Nine was going to be. They just lucked out with Rogue One doing Avengers-like numbers and you know Star Wars uh, episode-like numbers. But I think this is the type of box office these movies were meant to have. Now, where this gets considered a bomb, unfortunately, really only comes down to the budget because this movie costs apparently like three hundred million dollars to make. Now, when you consider it made about $400 million world cost, rumors are upwards of $250, $300 million. Chances are they did lose money on this for theatrical run because a movie makes $400 million, but others are keeping you know a good chunk of that. The actual profits are much smaller than $400 million. So yeah, it probably lost money. I, I know the merchandise wasn't huge for this. Uh, I know that the it's not like people are rediscovering this on blu-ray and stuff like that you know it's got a good run on netflix but it's not like it's like you know the hottest thing on netflix or anything so ultimately i can understand this being considered a financial disappointment but there's no way this is box office disappointment you know this comes out in uh 2018 so let's just look at what the other movies were it was sort of up against uh, obviously black panther you know putting that that's the rogue one of the marvel uh standalone films that does better business than infinity war uh but you have incredibles 2 coming out this year jurassic world fallen kingdom aquaman deadpool 2 the grinch mission impossible fallout ant-man and the wasps makes 216 dollars uh 216 dollars oh, wow. <laughs> uh, just went and saw it like 10 times <laughs> 216 million domestically solo makes 213 million domestically so pretty much dead on with what I'm saying here, that for a standalone non-team-up movie, this is what it should have been. Venom, another one of these, just behind Solo for domestic box office. Solo ends up as like the 12th highest grossing film of the year. That's still really good numbers. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it ultimately has to just come down to the budget of this movie, why people consider it a bomb. Because the numbers themselves, every time people say it's a bomb, they'll say, this movie made like $400 million. And I think that is fine, but it's just the reshoots. And that's the unfortunate thing is that this movie worked despite being reshot by a different director going through this troubled production. It just went over budget because they had to reshoot so much of the movie. There's no way this movie cost two hundred fifty to $300 million if they had hired Ron Howard from the beginning or stuck with Lord and Miller. The box office they had was going to be the same one way or the other. Uh, you you got to agree with me that there's no way this movie actually is a bomb considering the business it did. Well, I think if you if you release this 
before you release Rogue One and it still makes the same numbers. And then Rogue One, like, you know, you're not going to cancel these, are you? Like, Solo would have just been like, oh, okay, you know, well, it made $200 million, but, like, you know, it's not an official episode, so we can understand that, but it's still solid numbers, exactly what you're saying. It is purely, I think, a lot of it is that, I agree with you, the Rogue One factor of it the fact that that just did so much better than people thought and like i also like do you not also think that a lot of it is the fact that like not just necessarily because the last jedi's reaction but i mean this only came out like what barely five months afterwards and like i know you're saying sort of with the the marvel aspect but i think the one thing i'll say that's different like which they were trying to do which also maybe backfired a little bit is i think kind of you know as a star wars fan we don't like, we're happy to get a movie every couple of years. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, it used it, to be three years. Yeah, like, I mean, that was fine. I don't think, as a Star Wars fan, we expect one of these every year. And that, to me, is also a factor of it. Because, okay, while it's great, that, you know, Star Wars isn't a, an MCU where kind of they're just basically making a TV series out of movies. You know, this is a bit of awe around it. Like, you know, it's like, it's like you don't want a Bond movie every year. You know, I know they mm-hmm. used to way back in the day, but, like, I don't want a James Bond movie every year. Like, I like that gap in between them to feel like they're distinct enough. So, I, I feel like that also had a bit of play to it. Like, because was this not originally meant to be released at the end of 2018? Did they bring this forward? Um, no, I actually... Because <sighs> it seems no, odd that Rogue yeah. One was released at the end of the year. So, why was this brought five, like, in May in that period well, you're not, like, waited to the end of the year? Because I feel it would have done better at the end of the year yeah i mean that's the star wars time slot and you look at what ended up coming out around that time anyways it was aquaman and aquaman there's no way there was that aquaman did a lot of business partly because there was nothing else like it out at the time i mean we kind of both said well aquaman's a a really good movie too it's entertaining it's just like the aquaman doesn't offer anything more than solo did and Aquaman did a billion dollars, okay, with Which, less of an opening weekend wow. than Solo had. Um, so, yeah, I completely agree, and that is the, what's now the Star Wars weekend. Also, the fact that this comes out right after Infinity War, I mean, that's the same thing that affected the other Star Wars movie that was not the highest grossing film of the year, Attack of the Clones. Attack of the Clones comes out two weeks after Spider-Man blows away all expectations so yeah there's a lot of things that factored into this the star wars fatigue is the thing that it's mostly blamed on but i think you you kind of said it best there it's the fact that star wars fans always had to wait and that was almost part of the excitement with star wars movies i think that's one of the reasons why interest in the last jedi uh waned so much was because we were used to getting these star wars movies every three years and it was the excitement of waiting three years that made you want to see that movie more and what's even crazier maybe this makes sense with where the release dates were supposed to be the original plan was that the episodes were going to be only 18 months apart like episode 7 was supposed to be christmas of 2015 or whatever uh or 16 whatever year it was and it was going to be the summer a year and a half later they're going to last Jedi. these movies were supposed to be the, the episode 79 were supposed to be only a year and a half apart and in the end they said we're going to give ourselves two years and that gives us time to put the other movies in between there uh Which, so if, if you're filming them together a la lord of the rings wouldn't be too bad and then you probably got a bit more of a coherent storyline like mm-hmm. i think if that's what they did then we'd probably be fine with that but yeah I mean, different crews we'll to the last jedi and like how different it was and yeah <laughs> Um, I mean, really, the only person who needed to be involved in all these movies was Kathleen Kennedy, 
uh, you know, she sort of runs Lucasfilm. She's not so much the executive producer the way that George Lucas is was an executive producer. She's more of the company head, and I doubt she needed to be on set all the time. So the fact these are completely different crews, writers, everything, there there really was no reason that, yeah, these movies have to be so close and that's, together. And that's, I think, because these new ones that they're announcing after The Rise of Skywalker, I think they're going back to like a three or two year gap between them, aren't mm-hmm. they? So... Yeah, I just, I think that kind of that, that plays a part. And it's sad because, you know, it wasn't really that long after this, which they kind of said like, oh, we're, we're not looking at doing these anymore. Yeah. Um, which, look, you know, we, that sort of at the moment shelved a sequel to this. Like there was long talks of a Boba Fett one and obviously the Obi-Wan ones now that we know we're at least getting Obi-Wan TV. Are we getting a Boba Fett TV one? Have they officially announced that or not yet? No, um, uh, but I think some of the ideas are being used in the Mandalorian show. Yeah, which I mean, look, it's 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 exciting in its own self, but like I guess we will reserve judgment until that happens. I mean, at the time of releasing this, we're very what like a week or so away from the Mandalorian, but because we mm-hmm. haven't really had a Star Wars live action TV show before, so it's kind of we yeah. don't know what it's going to be like. So and, yeah, I mean, you said even about bringing Ray Park in, you know, to the Obi Wan series. Now, the fact is, even Marvel is leaning more towards the streaming thing because, like, let's be honest movies cost hundreds of million dollars to make and sure they may make a billion dollars but again so much of that goes to the theaters ultimately it's it may be getting to the point where it is more profitable especially if you have your own streaming service to sell these subscriptions because people will pick up a subscription to something just to watch it once and then they'll just keep it because like oh there's a lot of good stuff on there i mean that's how we got amazon prime there was the jack ryan tv show that started about a year ago so i picked up amazon prime for a free month and then when I saw the amount of stuff on there, I said, yeah, you know what? I'll, I'll renew this thing for the year and we'll see how it goes. And there will be a ton of people who pick up Disney Plus for The Mandalorian. There'll be even more people who pick it up for the Obi-Wan TV series. Uh, maybe there's a possibility because the numbers for this movie weren't bad. They were only bad compared to how much it cost. And the reaction to this was good. There's a possibility of the solo sequels eventually come out maybe in some form of a miniseries on Disney Plus now. Because then you don't have to worry about you know the box office competition and everything. And I think, too, what is also good with, you know, particularly Disney owning their own streaming service is that, like, you know, if this was just the traditional way, all of the, you know, HBO picked this up or CBS or something like that, like, there's always that threat of cancellation. There's always this, like, at least Disney can produce this themselves, um, do it themselves, and, you know, even if... You know, I'm sure if the ratings are terrible, they're not going to, like, do it. But, like, you kind of feel a bit more confident now that they can kind of do a bit more of a, a story based on their own you know, everything that they can produce themselves because they own the bloody channel that it's being aired on, you know, they own everything with it. So, and it's, yeah, not necessarily going to be based on things like box office, which is purely why, because I think, um, in, I keep mentioning the review, it's one time I actually go back and listen to one of our old episodes, but <laughs> you, I know you mentioned in that, that kind of like Ron Howard was saying about, you know, that a sequel would not be dependent on box office. It would be dependent yeah. on if the fans want it. And well, Ron, you were wrong. <laughs> because the fans want it, but Disney said no. So yeah. um, that's the sad but fact about this. That's the exciting thing about the Obi-Wan. At the time we're recording this, like one week ago when we recorded Revenge of the Sith, we were sort of talking about, oh, you know, there's rumors that this Obi-Wan movie that was going to happen is now going to be a TV show. And one week later, we're like, the announcement came, what, 24 hours ago at the time we recorded this? The Obi-Wan yeah. TV series is happening? Let's also not forget that that Obi-Wan movie announcement, you know, was right before Solo came out. And 
it was after Solo came out that they said they're probably going to move the Obi like they they're going to stop the the anthology films theatrically. They're probably going to move this Obi Wan movie to the streaming service. And a year and a half later, it's become a TV series. So I, I do think that we'll get something with this. I don't know if Alden Ehrenreich will be in it because maybe contracts you know won't extend to a TV show the same way if it's a movie. But I really hope we get some continuation, not just of the Darth Maul thing, because that, I think, is more suited for the Obi-Wan show, but some continuation of the solo story, because I think there's other good stuff in here I really want to see them follow through. Yeah, I agree. And, it, you know, I mean, Amelia Clark's not doing Game of Thrones anymore, right? So she's available. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Ansel Engbort, when he does a Baby Driver <laughs> sequel, um, <laughs> you know. I, I don't know at this point if... Uh, that's a joke, or if you actually have forgotten that it is not Ansel Elgort <laughs> who's in this movie. <laughs> I just Ansel Elgort, what a name. Uh, uh, almost as great as Alden Ehrenreich. Uh, yeah. Can we just go back to calling our actors Mark Hamill? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Harrison Ford. Like, come on. Well, Ray Park's got it going on. Duh. <laughs> in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's do some plot keywords here. I think we've gotten better off of our first couple, which was uh, Attack of the Clones turned out to be the most awful one. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Interspecies Friendship Month. Uh, uh. <laughs> let's just hope it's not all Star Wars films, because otherwise we're in the process of covering it right now. Sadly, if we do that, we're going to have to do Captain Marvel, uh. The Lion King. Which uh, one? The new one. Uh um, Uh... <laughs> Thor Ragnarok and the Vampire Diaries. Uh, yeah. species. If we could have like, I'm. It's not going on here. I maybe it is. I'm not going to search through all these. But if we could have like Man and Droid awkward sexual relationship month, like <laughs> th- that may actually be the winner at this point. I'd uh, do Vampire Diaries. I'd be. I'd happily talk about it in Summer Holder for a lot longer. Like, come on. Yep. I'm. I'm down with um, that. Oh, I, I. I'm really hoping that one thing is on here. Monorail month. Now let's monorail, hope that monorail, the Simpsons. Monorail. Yeah. Uh, no, sadly, it would be Black Panther, 2014's Godzilla, Solo, a Star Wars story, and Incredibles 2. How is the monorail episode of The Simpsons not on there? It's like regarded as the best episode of The Simpsons, isn't it? Like everyone always sings that. Mal- Mallory yeah. loves The Music Man. It's like one of her random favorite movies, and she was showing me the um, the sequence that obviously the monorail song was based off. And the whole time she's sewing, I'm just like singing monorail, monorail. She's like, what are you singing? I'm like, how do you not know this? (laughs) Um, We could end up with nappy month, cleavage month, or sideburns month. Mm, Combine all three. I'm going for looking at oneself in a mirror month. Ooh. um, Capes in the closet month? No, that's not a thing. Uh, Torso (laughs) cut in half month. Um... Chess month, no, jungle month, bilingualism month, yeah. uh, film begins with text month. Yeah, this is turning bad quick. dumb. Massive explosion uh, month, male versus female month. Wisecrack uh, humor month, ooh. Girlfriend, boyfriend, uh, uh, relationship month. <laughs> view in rearview mirror month. Um, Mustache month, here we go. Well, there's that in <laughs> sideburns. What would be our pick? Well, Moustache better have uh, Mission Impossible on it. Oh, it does. Yes. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Bohemian Rhapsody, Wonder Woman, and Green Book. Um, um, I'm going to end it off here with Running Amok Month. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with Solo, but Solo, a Star Wars story, is not only number one, it is the only thing on Running Amok plot keyword. 
Okay, hang on. You've also got Caucasian month. Yep. <laughs> All right. Tough girl month and midget month. Oh, the M word, and it's not moof milker. I know. I just, I'm just reading what I see in front of me, folks. That's that's all I'm saying. Uh oh, here I can't wait for character says stay with me month. <laughs> what is that? Also what about... filled with solo a Star Wars story and nothing else. What about Kessel Run month? That's actually here. <laughs> uh, oh, here's one for Jamie. Man in a shower month. <laughs> Featuring Red Sparrow, Solo, A Star Wars Story, The Meg, ugh, and Papillon, 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 Papillon. And um, I'm interested, since you listened to our review episode, to see if our opinions change on this, because uh, you actually know if we bought it, rented it, or binned it. I can't we remember what I did. We did? Okay. Um, did. I'm going to, I thought that I had rented this before. Uh, my opinion hasn't really changed on as far as what I would consider a recommendation for this because I'm definitely buying this now. If I was on the fence before, I would buy it because this movie, it was good and entertaining the first time you saw it. The second time I saw it, there's a lot of movies where you expect it to get better the second time. We even all talked about The Last Jedi. When we saw The Last Jedi the second time, we said, yeah, I still don't like it, but it definitely got better. This movie not only gets better on a second viewing, it gets way better on a second viewing. And I don't know if on a third viewing it becomes like a classic or anything, uh, but I think at least two viewings, it's it's warranted for this. Um, I'm definitely buying this now. However, I do want to say I still don't consider this of all the movies, and this includes The Last Jedi, I don't consider this to be must-see. If you have to skip one movie, even though you said like Solo's an easy one just to throw at a person, I think Solo is still the one movie you skip. Um, mm. But still, I consider this way more entertaining than The Last Jedi, for sure. I agree with everything you said. I'm still buying it. I it picked up a lot better on a second time around. But yeah, I think you could skip this one. And, you know, I think kind of in watching these to podcast about them, I'm still probably going to rewatch all the Star Wars movies just before The Rise of Skywalker comes out, just because I'll binge them a lot quickly. And I kind of think to myself, like, well, do I watch uh, this and Rogue One? Rogue One, like you do just because you you do that just before and you hope because it kind of you know i probably just watch the last half hour of a rogue one and then i'll be fine like that's kind of all you need to watch but i i mean i'm, I'm still a sucker for continuity and canon and stuff so i mean i probably should then watch clone wars movie as well maybe i will i haven't watched that since we podcast about it so um yeah but my point is i would still buy this movie i think it's still as i've said multiple times the best disney one that they've done and uh, yeah, it's still an, it's an entertaining movie that I hope gets some love. And I, I shouldn't say hope because we're just going to have to mention that word yep. about thirty times next week, aren't we? <laughs> um, so we still found a way to go three hours on a movie that we have barely seen once or twice. I'm proud of uh, ourselves, though. Like I honestly did when we said this is going to be short. I still thought we were going to go for like five hours. So I'm actually yeah. proud of ourselves that we're only at like three hours. Yeah, I mean, if Tandy Newton was in the entire movie, we would have been at five hours by now, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, so that leads us into as we've talked about a lot already rogue one which is the polar opposite of solo in so many ways it's kind of the humorless star wars movie um it is i mean the first spinoff but it's one that is so connected to another movie that you do kind of have to watch them back to back uh even though as you said you know it's you consider it overrated this is one of those movies that so many people say is better than 
a lot of the Star Wars movies. I've heard people say that this would rank higher than even Return of the Jedi in their list. That that's, I, I've heard people say that this is the greatest Star Wars movie of all time. My opinion, even though I, I definitely hold it in a higher regard than you do, I mean, I really think this is a strong movie. And when it came out, I'm like, I absolutely love everything about that movie. It's so good. Um, I never saw this more than once in the theater. And I've seen it maybe two other times since then. So I've kind of watched it, you know, in my rewatches of the Star Wars movies. Uh, I watched it once just so I could watch it back to back with The New Hope. But I watched The Last Jedi four times in the theaters. And <laughs> maybe it's something just with these anthology movies where they are just kind of the standalone adventures. And with the, you know, the, the episodes, even when I dislike what they do, I kind of want to pick up. Did I miss anything here? Did I miss anything here? Uh, and, oh, this sets up the next movie. Let me try to read more into this. This was kind of a one-and-done thing for me, and yet I absolutely love the movie. Uh, and the only other time I've watched this with A New Hope back-to-back was right before I watched The Last Jedi. So it's been you know now almost two years since I've seen this movie. I saw bits and pieces of it when it was on TV. Um, but I'm going to have a lot more good things to say about this than you are. But I kind of have a feeling that we're both going to be on the same page of this movie still not being up to par with even some of the prequels in our mind. Just quickly, uh, we didn't rate Solo. I'm guessing we put it at the bottom, like it's number four oh, in yeah. our ranking right now. Yeah, I'm like, guessing. the thing is, is that I definitely see more flaws as a whole with The Phantom Menace, but this is kind of in our defense with The Phantom Menace. I- I'm backing up that there are more things in The Phantom Menace that are must-see than this, because you have the pod race, you have the lightsaber battle, you know, you have the space battle, you have... Uh, Qui-Gon and this is like yeah it's really good for what it is but nothing really stands out so I'd still go episode 3 episode 2 episode 1 and then solo yeah I I agree Um, and just quickly for you Woody Harrelson or Liam Neeson oh that's so tough I mean right now I would say Liam Neeson just because Woody Harrelson was like childhood icon of mine for you know i mean for everything white man can't jump especially but then you had cheers in there and uh kingpin and natural born killers uh not that i was watching that as a kid but you know as i got older <laughs> uh and liam neeson is an adult is kind of like that equivalent where it's like he's the guy that you have to see everything in but no that that's really good questions that would be super close for me yeah, so Rogue One, like I, similar to you, I only saw it once at the movies and um it was a weird time I remember when I saw it at the movies because, I, I mean, I might talk about this a little bit more next week, but kind of, you know, I had a lot in my personal life at the time when it was kind of just like I almost wasn't going to see it and it was just kind of a basically like I need to get out of the house and do something. So I just kind of stormed out and saw it because I was like, oh, fuck, mm-hmm. that movie's on. I better go see it. So kind of like, yeah, it was kind of a, a one and done sort of thing. And I remember leaving the cinema just going like, okay, like that was good. Uh, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. Um, you know, like the, the Vader scene was incredible, like the mm-hmm. sort of the ending and sort of the way it connects into it, you know, and straight away you're like, wow, I really want to watch A New Hope right now. So, um, you know, I don't dislike this movie. I do like Rogue One. I just think, yeah, as I keep saying, it's, I just think it's overrated. I just don't get the love it gets like it. Cause you know, as you said, people after this came out were saying this is like the greatest Star Wars movie ever. And you know, it just to me, I just got baffled as to why people were talking this up like it was the greatest thing ever. So that's where I think it's overrated. 
But I, exactly the same as you, I probably haven't seen this since the rewatch in the lead up to The Last Jedi. I did do the, like, as soon as I watched it, I watched A New Hope, and it, it, it's amazing watching them together. I actually think when this first got released on, like, Blu-ray and DVD, and people started uploading to YouTube, like, the connections from the end to the beginning, like, and you mm-hmm. watched it, like, it's, it's, it's really cool. Like, I think there's still probably some on YouTube if they haven't been taken down for copyright reasons. So, there's, there's definitely some great stuff about this, I think, kind of, you know, Jimmy Smits is back, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the Vader stuff, like, probably the greatest Darth Vader scene in all of Star Wars, is yeah. in this movie so um and just and it is that lead up and anticipation in the closing moments where it does it is great and you do leave with a smile on your face because of how good it does end but yeah there's a lot of stuff in the lead up to it which i think is just kind of there and like you know i i i would almost literally as i said before just watch the last half hour of this and skip everything else when i'm doing a rewatch. but um mm-hmm. i'm still looking forward to talking about it. i'm still looking forward to watching it again because, you know, my mind always gets swayed with things. So it's, and look, I think we've all said probably going to buy every single one of these Star Wars movies with the exception of The Last Jedi. Yeah. And I probably still will buy Rogue One. I, again, I don't hate this movie. I just think it's overrated. We're going to get there next week. Um, and then eventually we're going to get into four or five and six and then seven and eight. So this nice three-hour-plus episode was a nice break for us. But uh, we'll see if Rogue One goes any later than that uh we're gonna be back next week for that and uh make sure in the meantime to listen to all of our other episodes we have going on out there like us on facebook follow us on twitter instagram subscribe to us on itunes anywhere else you can get them uh we are done here my name is colin and and my name is ben and colin I don't podcast twice. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.